This week's episode of What's in the Basket includes in-depth discussion of all the fucked up shit that happens in The Exorcist, as well as a brief look at a real-life murder connected to the film. Listener discretion is advised. Also, the crickets get pretty loud at some points. Sorry about that. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. Eddie, what are you doing? The best I can. How did you get the money? How did you get the woman? What do you? There's always magic. What's in the basket? I majored in podcasting. <laughs> I went to uh, I went to broadcasting school. I went to Ted Baxter's famous broadcasting school, and um, I took out a lot of loans. <laughs> I will never be able to buy a house. I mean, I think that could be said for all of us, though. Um, even if we did do a real degree. That's just the reality for people our age. I saw a thing talking about how now um, the latest, well, this article is a couple of years old. I just found it on some forum I was reading. But um, the latest city to become the victim of rising home prices is fucking Boise, Idaho. It's gotten to the point where people who are from Boise can no longer afford to buy a home and raise their children there because it's had such an influx of like tech companies from the Bay Area. Like, what has Silicon Valley not ruined at this point? And also, can you imagine living your entire goddamn life in Boise, Idaho, and being like, oh, I'm set. This is this place is never going to get gentrified. And then it does. I, I've, I've been to Idaho. No offense to anyone who lives in Idaho. I lived in Idaho for a time as a child. Um, I think I almost drowned in the Snake River. Well, thank God you didn't. Someone's It's a Wonderful Life, G. I wish I had. Wouldn't have all the student loan debt from Ted Baxter's famous <laughs> broadcasting school. <laughs> um, I tried weighing my cat again yesterday and failed miserably. The scale simply would not register, no matter how many times I got off and got on again. And then he tore a hole in my shirt. So we just <laughs> decided to give up on weighing him this week. Um, so he, he could be fatter, he could be thinner, I don't know. That's just a little fat cat update. Good for him. Anyway, this is a podcast about movies, not about housing values in Boise, Idaho. Hey, hey, go! Wait, you like movies? Very much. Well, I get passes to the best shows in town. Mrs. K, though, you know, she gets tired, you know, never likes to go. It's too bad. Yeah, I hate to go alone. You know, I love to talk, film, you know. Disgust to critique. You want to see a film with me? I got passes to the crest. It's a pillow. Who's in it? Who's in it? Debbie Reynolds, Desdemona, and Othello Groucho Marx. You happy? I've seen it. Hello, and welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Tiff, and as always, I'm joined by Amelia. Hello. And Candace. Hi. And today we're officially kicking off spooky season. We're talking about an actual scary movie entitled The Exorcist from 1973. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a little a little undiscovered gem. <laughs> I didn't really like write down a synopsis of this movie because I feel like everyone knows what happens in The Exorcist. Yeah, I think everyone, even if you haven't seen it, has sort of like 
like Beatles songs. This part of the public consciousness. At least you know enough about it. You come out of the womb knowing that Father Karras' mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> Be unto her, O Lord, a fortified tower in the face of the enemy. <laughs> Let the enemy have no power over her. And the sound of iniquity be powerless to harm her. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, oh, Karras, you prayer. faithless slime. Come on to me. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. And, you know, that's her prerogative. She's allowed to do that if she wants. I mean, she spent all those years rotting away in that shitty little apartment in New York. Time for her to have some fun. Let loose. Let loose. Ugh. <laughs> 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 You're thinking about Father Carrots. Father Carrots. Father Carrots. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like looking back, most of my episodes have started with someone's birth, but unfortunately this week is no different. William Peter Blatty was born in the Bronx in 1928. His parents were the very religious Lebanese Catholics, Peter and Mary Blatty, who had immigrated from Beirut aboard a cattle boat with their older children in tow. The Blattys were poor. Peter at one point made a living picking up trash on the subway, and the family was always moving to evade debt collectors and unpaid rent. Their financial struggles only intensified one morning when Bill was three years old and his father just walked out took a little suitcase and never came back. It wasn't until Bill was a freshman in high school that they learned of his fate when Mary received a phone call informing her of his death. That was about 10 years later. Why would you take such a small suitcase? <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been me editorializing a little bit. <laughs> I'm visualizing like he has options and he's like, I gotta leave them the bigger suitcase for the next time they have to flee a landlord. That was nice of him. He was having a littlest hobo fucking... <laughs> Fanfic. He was being thoughtful. <laughs> so to support her children, Mary, who never became fluent in English, would sell quince jelly on the streets of New York. As he was her youngest, Mary and Bill developed a very close, perhaps codependent relationship. In particular, she put an enormous amount of stake into his education. He attended the Jesuit Brooklyn Preparatory School on a scholarship and graduated as valedictorian. On Thanksgiving in his senior year, Mary invited a friend over for dinner, whose date taught theology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. So like the now-defunct Brooklyn Prep, Georgetown is a Jesuit institution with a thriving religious life. The devout Catholic Mary was impressed with what she heard about the school, and when their guest departed, she announced to her son, you're gonna go to Georgetown. <laughs> So at this time, 17-year-old Bill Blatty was pushing an ice cream wagon in Brooklyn to help support himself and his mother, so he asked the obvious question, which was, how are we ever going to afford Georgetown? To which Mary replied, you're going to win a scholarship. Oh, okay, easy. It's just that easy, huh? Uh, it was very easy because Georgetown awarded one full scholarship a year, and to win it, you had to achieve the highest score on a seven-hour entrance exam. So Blatty sat the exam at Columbia University and came out convinced that he'd absolutely blown it. And as he later told William Friedkin, if my father had been a Rockefeller and endowed Georgetown with $100 million, they wouldn't have taken me based on my performance on that exam. Uh, however, that summer while working as a waiter in the Catskills, Blatty learned that he had scored the highest and won a full ride to Georgetown, which I don't know how he thought he biffed it so bad, but all right. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. Like, whenever you walk out of an exam that you do well on, you always think you tanked. It's just the natural way of things. And then when you think you've done really good in an exam, you've actually done very poorly in <laughs> yeah. that exam. Seven hours. Seven hours. It's so long. How much can there be to know? We're learning new things every day. I mean, I feel like everything I do know couldn't fill seven hours. I would immediately forget everything I ever learned and just sit there, like, really uncomfortably for seven hours. I mean, not to brag, but I was a National Merit Scholar, so. Mm. Mm, which I believe <laughs> I got 98th percentile or something on the SAT. So, just throwing that out there. You two can be me and have a podcast. Anyway, continue. <laughs> uh, so Blatty loved Georgetown. He would later describe his undergrad years as the best of his life. 
1949, three years into his degree in English literature, he was attending a lecture on the New Testament when he first learned of the story that would eventually inspire his most famous work. His professor, Father Eugene Gallagher, quote, came into class all fired up one day about a Jesuit who was involved in an exorcism. He gave us a number of details, some of which turned out to be incorrect, but there I am at Georgetown just in time to hear about this case. My immediate thought was, wow, talk about validating one's faith. The case turned out to be that of Roland Doe, an anonymous 14-year-old Maryland boy whose alleged possession was cured by a Catholic exorcism. So Father Gallagher's account of the story was bolstered by a front-page article published in the Washington Post written by Bill Brinkley. The article described the boy as a native of nearby Mount Rainier, though a strange magazine investigation by writer Mark Obsasnik in the 1990s would reveal that the events really took place in the tiny town of Cottage City. So basically, um, after he and his aunt played with a Ouija board, the boy apparently began displaying odd symptoms, phantom knocking on the walls of his bedroom, dramatic swings in personality, profane and blasphemous speech, the manifestation of words and bloody scratches on his body, projectile vomiting, objects moving on their own, levitation, etc., etc. Basically stuff that's familiar to us now is characteristic of, like, possession, but it was much more novel in 1949 when the Catholic Church had reported just two exorcisms in the United States since 1900. It's just having a normal one. Just, a, you know, a bit of a normal time. I mean... It's the Catholic Church. They are they do have a flair for the dramatic. So I'm sure they handled this with adequate subtlety and discretion. So according to Brinkley's article, the boy's family exhausted all of its medical options before consulting their Lutheran minister, who in turn suggested they seek Catholic guidance. He was like, I don't I don't fucking know how to handle this. <laughs> I mean, he's smart. He's technically the smartest person in this whole story. He's just like, I'm not fucking with demons. <laughs> Leave me alone. That's for the Catholics to deal with. Also, the wonder of Catholicism is the idea that it's like everything is like shrouded in mystery, but at the same time, through like the exorbitant amount of like church lore, it's like we can explain every phenomenon. Phenomena. And we can explain all the phenomena, but um, phenomena? Phenomena? Which one's the. Phenomena. But it's like everything is everything is a, is a is a grand mystery shrouded in secrecy. Except also we have all the answers, which I think is really cool. The boy was then taken to the Georgetown University Hospital, where a Father Albert Hughes attempted to perform the ritual, but basically freaked out and bailed when the boy slashed him violently in the arm with a bedspring. Uh, this particular aspect of the story has since been pretty thoroughly debunked by Obsasnik, so... I mean, it sounds fucking gnarly as hell. I mean, I, you can't blame him for, like, roadrunnering out of there um, <laughs> if he's just, like, assaulted by a with a rusty bed spring. So was okay. Did the kid like slice open the mattress and, st and pull out the bed spring, or was this like was the bed spring already emerged? Like, how much effort did the possessed child put into this? I'm not sure this really happened. No, it did. It did. Um, <laughs> I, I was there. I can confirm because it's a good story. Um, but I like the idea that he just kind of just yanks it out of the side. I mean, have you you've slept on a bed made in, like, that time? That's true. That's very true. Yeah, it's not fun. The bed springs are, like, right there. It's, like, may as well not have any padding on it at all. Well, where I came down on this after reading about it, from the sounds of the article I read, the Strange Magazine article, the bed spring incident has been exaggerated. But 
We do know that the boy was then transferred to the Alexian Hospital in St. Louis, where a team of seven priests, led by Father William S. Bodern, performed a month-long exorcism that was eventually deemed successful. Uh, the boy then returned to Cottage City, claimed to have no memory of his possession, and grew up to work for NASA. What did he do at NASA? Maybe he, like, worked on coils and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he developed Ripley's sleep pod from Aliens. <laughs> I couldn't find specifically what he did for NASA because he has been kept pretty successfully anonymous. I think he might still be out there. Uh, maybe he's dead by now, but in the 90s, he was definitely still alive. Which is crazy that they've managed to keep that a secret. I mean, the Catholic Church is good at keeping secrets, but not that good. <laughs> That's really wild because you think about it, and the, there are so few chances for true anonymity these days. Um, the idea that you could be the subject of such a high-profile story, such a famous story, and still manage to kind of, like, elude people. You'd think at one point people would, somebody would talk. Yeah, the guy who wrote that, uh, the article I was mentioning, I believe he did track him down and he called him. And when he called him, the guy was just like, no, like, I'm not fucking talking to you about this. And the writer was uh, respectful enough to leave his name out of it. So Blatty was captivated by the case, which he saw as a potential validation of his faith, but nothing came of it at first. He graduated from Georgetown in 1950 and moved on to George Washington University, where he worked his way through a master's degree in English, working odd jobs like selling vacuums and driving a beer truck. It's the first gig economy. We love a working class king. After that, he spent some time in the Air Force. Then he worked for the United States Information Agency in Beirut. Upon returning to the States, he took a job in public relations at Loyola University. University in Los Angeles, then became publicity director for the University of Southern California. Man, you could just, like, get a job back then, yeah, huh? you could really just do whatever the fuck you wanted. He had degrees in English and was doing this shit. <sighs> really makes you angry. <laughs> so during this time, he also dabbled in acting, but he was told that his ethnic looks precluded him from being considered for leading man parts. Uh, undeterred, he entertained himself by posing as an Arabian prince at Hollywood parties. He called himself <laughs> Prince Zier. X-E-E-R, and fooled a number of stars, including Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> I don't think that's a particularly hard one to fool. <laughs> yeah. uh, he ghostwrote a Dear Abby advice book entitled Dear Teenager, which was surprisingly successful, then published his first book under his own name, a comic memoir of his youth and time in Lebanon entitled Which Way to Mecca Jack in 1960. He then won $10,000 in a 1961 appearance on the Groucho Marx game show You Bet Your Life, which he used to quit his job <laughs> at USC and focus on writing. Fuck. Ten grand used to go a lot farther those days. Man, I wish I could win $10,000 on a Groucho Marx game show. So the 60s were an extremely prolific period for Blatty. He published three novels and got into screenwriting, starting with the Frank Tashlin 1963 Danny Kaye comedy The Man from the Diners Club. His collaborations with director Blake Edwards began a year later, when he scripted the second entry in the Pink Panther series A Shot in the Dark. I was gonna say, I have never heard of that Danny Kaye movie in my life. The poster looks bad. It looks really bad. Frank Tashlin movies on the whole are, like, not good, but that... That sounds particularly egregious. Never really got the Danny Kaye thing. You know who allegedly got the Danny Kaye thing? Allegedly. <laughs> Lawrence Olivier allegedly got the Danny Kaye thing. How would that work? They both look like they have the same kind of horrible flat face. Well, what do narcissists love more than looking I guess, into a mirror? yeah. So A Shot in the Dark was followed by a screen adaptation of his own novel, John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, which was directed by J. Lee Thompson and starred Shirley MacLaine. He also continued to work with Edwards, scripting What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? in 1966, Gun in 1967, and Darling Lily in 1970. Why does every movie in the 60s have a terrible title? They're really bad. <laughs> 
What was that um, fucking Dustin Hoffman movie I was thinking of earlier? Oh, who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me? It's just like, that's 1971. That's awful. It's the same thing. I, they all have such long, long titles. And anyway, horrible, horrible time. Gun was a film adaptation of Edward's 1959 television series, Peter Gunn, and it provided the setting for Blatty's first encounter with director William Friedkin. Edwards eventually directed the movie himself, but early in pre-production, he'd approached Friedkin with the opportunity and presented him with Blatty's script. As Friedkin recalls, quote, I read the script and I hated it. Really hated it. I didn't really know what to say to Blake because I wanted to do the picture, but not that picture. So I went back to see Blake and I said, Blake, I really hate this script. As a matter of fact, I think it's the worst piece of shit I ever read in my life. And I never had directed anything really. And Blake is a really fine director and he was a little stunned by what I had to say and pushed a button on his desk and he said, oh, really? Is that your comment? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'd like you to give it to the fellow who wrote the script. He's sitting in the other office. And in came Bill Blatty. And Bill was this kind of nervous guy. He had a facial tick, and he was sort of nervous, and he needed money, and he came in and sat down. And Blake said, Bill Friedkin, this is Bill Blatty. He's read your script. Why don't you tell him what you think of it? Well, I didn't temper my comments too much, but after I said it, Bill Blatty broke into hysterical laughter, and he said, You know, you're absolutely right. It really is a rotten script, and nobody around here has had the guts to say it. Oh my god. Blake had a bit of an ego. Blake did not like being challenged on things. The thing, though, is that Friedkin has a bit of an ego, and he <laughs> <laughs> does has done nothing to warrant having such an ego at this point. Uh no, you know he hasn't. But the difference there is that I think Blake Edwards is someone who when he's hot, he's hot, and when he's not, he makes the worst goddamn movies I've ever seen in my life. Like steaming trash fires. I really don't know that much about Blake Edwards. I don't know if that comes down to editing or producing or something, but I don't understand how somebody, he's a really, really, really inconsistent director. Friedkin was right <laughs> and he should say it. Uh, so Blatty and Friedkin kept in touch. According to Friedkin, he would quote, run into him on the street or at the racetrack and they'd occasionally <laughs> talk on the phone. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, in addition to meeting Friedkin, however, 1967 included another major milestone in Blatty's life, which was the death of his mother. So, like I said earlier, Bill and Mary Blatty had been extremely close, and Bill took her death hard. He would later uh, recall undergoing a serious religious crisis during this period, quote, when I would describe my faith as more of an intense hope than a solidly held belief. Initially, Blatty attempted to cope with the loss of his mother through spiritualism, consulting mediums and using Ouija boards to contact her, but he called these experiences ludicrous and found himself instead developing a renewed interest in the Roland Doe case that had fascinated him nearly 20 years earlier. So he began to dwell on the concept of writing a book about the case, which he described to the editor-in-chief of Bantam Books, Mark Jaffe, at a New Year's Eve party in 1968. To his surprise, Jaffe offered to buy the as-yet unwritten book on the spot, and it wasn't until after he signed the contract with Bantam that Blatty he realized he would have to write it as fiction since so much of the information about the real case was just completely under lock and key. The man's got chutzpah. I'll give him that. I mean, he's always fallen ass backwards into an opportunity, so... Bit of a record scratch moment, for sure. Yeah. Blatty yeah. then started reading up about exorcism in general, but even that broad concept was difficult to research in the late 60s. The Catholic Church was pretty reticent about possession and exorcism, and it's largely due to the exorcist itself that the subject became so popular later on. However, Father Gallagher, the professor who had introduced the story to Blatty in the first place, was able to put him in touch with Father Bodurin, the priest who had led the team of exorcists that allegedly cured the boy in St. Louis. Do you reckon they had, like, you know, break glass in case of 
exorcism kind of alarm and they've got like special robes that they wear maybe hard hats or something but they're like shaped like bishop's hats or whatever no they have like a cool pole like in a firehouse and they all like slide yeah, down it driving everywhere in like i don't know what kind of car would a catholic drive in pope mobile no they don't they're not the pope <laughs> only the pope gets the pope mobile they're gonna be in like a they're gonna be in a very corolla tr- yeah they're gonna be in a, a very drab domestic sedan they're in like, like a, a pontiac uh, I don't think priests can afford a Volvo. No, but like in the seventies. Well, no, this is the forties. So they're they're driving a, a Studebaker. I don't know if Studebaker's still around in the forties. They're in like they're in like the jalopy from the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> they got their cool helmets on, their cool exorcism helmets on. Because as we've established, you know, when you're exercising the kid, the kids are hitting you with bed springs and shit. So they gotta wear their cool helmets. Mm-hmm. And they got flame-proof jackets in case the devil tries to light you on fire. So, Blatty and Vaudern never met in person or even spoke over the phone, but they began a long correspondence via letter in 1968. Vaudern's first letter in response to Blatty read in part, quote, As you stated in your letter, it is very difficult to find any authentic literature on cases of possession. At least I could not find any when I was involved in such a case. Accordingly, we kept a minute account each day of the happenings, each preceding day and night. Our diary would be most helpful to anyone placed in a similar position as an exorcist. My own thoughts were that much good might have come if the case had been reported and people had come to realize that the presence and the activity of the devil is something very real. I can assure you of one thing. The case in which I was involved was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then, and I have no doubts about it now. So through their correspondence, Father Bodern agreed to assist Blatty in the research for his novel, on the condition that great pains be taken to maintain the anonymity of the possessed boy. Blatty then holed up in his ex-wife's guest house to work on the novel. He would write from 11 p.m. until dawn, feeling that this was the time when he was best able to access his unconscious mind. The original plot involved a young boy on trial for murder whose defense is demonic possession. The boy was turned into a girl in compliance with Father Bodern's request to downplay the connection to Roland Doe. The story shifted as he wrote, and he realized his desire to portray both a priest crisis of faith, in no small part influenced by his own experience in the wake of his mother's death, and the journey of an atheist mother who comes to believe in possession. The novel that Blatty set out to write was not a horror story, according to him. Rather, he deliberately intended to reflect his own Catholic beliefs in what he described as a supernatural detective story. (laughs) As he explained, quote, This one venture outside of comedy was going to be it for me, the story that had been festering inside me for 20 years. Okay, I'm gonna do it. I've got nothing else to do but collect unemployment. No excuses. My hope was that it would be reviewed with respect, that I wouldn't be mocked. That's all I was hoping for. That is very sad for a man who, again, as we've established, <laughs> is successful at everything he tries, more or less. I feel like his life thus far should have, should have taught him that this book was going to be a runaway success. <laughs> Some people just really aren't good at picking up on context clues, though. Well, I'm sure part of that seven-hour exam was about context clues. The novel was released in the spring of 1971, and the publisher spared no expense in publicity. Blatty was sent on a 26-day promotional tour, but initial sales were poor. Uh, Fate intervened one night when Blatty received a call asking if he'd be able to fill in for a last-minute cancellation on The Dick Cavett Show. According to Friedkin's memoir, quote, When he took the stage, Cavett greeted him with, I'm sorry, Mr. Blatty, but I haven't read your book. To which Blatty responded, Then may I tell you about it? He then spoke for more than 40 minutes, interrupted by only one question from the host in a commercial break. Cavett's question was asked with irony. Mr. Blatty, do you really believe in the existence of Satan? Blatty's answer was that in every society, in every age, 
there is mention of an evil magician that spoils the work of the creator. The Cabot Show was seen nationally, and within two weeks, The Exorcist went from obscurity to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And this was before Fox News, like, just bulk purchased any of their presenters' books. This is back when the New York's bestseller list actually meant something. Dick Cabot, uh, I feel like was often unprepared when people came on the air. I feel like that's not the only time I've ever heard Dick Cabot being like, sorry, I don't know who you are or what you do, but... I want to know, like, who was he replacing? Didn't say, yeah. I hope it was someone whose book then did not end up on the bestseller list. It was Roland Doe. He wrote a book about his experiences being exorcised. <laughs> uh, so as we've established, everyone had pretty high hopes for The Exorcist from the jump, except for Blatty, apparently. As such, Warner Brothers bought the movie rights before the book was even published. Paul Menashe, who created the Peyton Place TV series and had recently produced Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, was brought on to spearhead the project. Blatty received $75,000 with the expectation that he would disappear and, I guess, just sort of let the big boys handle it. Blatty, however, then learned that Warners had been willing to pay as much as $600,000 for the rights. So not only had Menashe completely lowballed him, but he was also planning to make a number of changes to the novel, such as moving the setting from Georgetown to Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, a city known for its connections to, to Catholicism. Aha. <laughs> We seem to have a skeptic in our midst. Mr. Dennison, would you care to share your California laid-back tie-dye point of view? Okay. Granted that uh, you guys here in Salem are all into these uh, black cats and witches and stuff. Stuff? Stuff. But everyone here knows that Halloween was invented by the candy companies. It's a conspiracy. Blatty went to Warner's president, Frank Wells, and made such a stink that they wound up giving him the full $600,000 plus 37% of the net profits, as well as Menashe's removal from the project. So they booted him off. And again, I mean, he was right to do it. But so few people would ever demand that and, and have the studio comply. I don't understand why Blatty keeps doubting himself. I know. He's got he a bizarre power. So several directors were considered, among them Stanley Kubrick who Friedkin claims wasn't interested in doing an adaptation at this time, but his two films of the 70s were A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, so that might just be some Friedkin bullshit. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, Arthur Penn, who apparently was drawn to less explicitly violent projects after Bonnie and Clyde, and Mike Nichols, who refused on the grounds that, quote, I'm not going to stake my career and the picture's success or failure on the performance of a 12-year-old girl. Well, you know, that could have gone very wrong. I must admit. Facing these rejections, Warner started pushing for Mike Rydell, whose current film in production was The Cowboys, starring John Wayne. Blatty, meanwhile, wanted Friedkin, who was working on The French Connection. I thought, this needs an honest director that is not Catholic, that is agnostic on the subject, and can give this incredible story such a sense of documentary reality that it will work. Blatty admired Friedkin's sort of documentary style. Warner's, on the other hand, absolutely balked at the idea of hiring a guy whose credits to this point were the Sonny and Cher vehicle Good Times and the quote-unquote art films The Birthday Party, The Night They Raided Minsky's, and The Boys in the Band, all of which Candace touched upon in our Boys in the Band episode, which I recommend checking out for more context on our best friend Friedkin. <laughs> He's an insane man. He's a lunatic. <laughs> Warner's insisted Blatty watch The Cowboys. He reluctantly agreed, but left the screening room 10 minutes into the movie and told Frank Wells, I've seen enough. I want Friedkin. The Exorcist was still the number one book in the country, and Blatty was still working the talk show 
circuit, he threatened to go on TV and tell the Johnny Carson audience that Warners was forcing the director of the Cowboys on him even though he hated the movie. Frank Wells begged him not to do it, but Blatty insisted that he'd been left with no other option. So luckily for Warners, the French Connection opened around the same time as Blatty's scheduled Tonight Show appearance. Uh, the film, which would go on to win five Oscars, including Best Picture, was well-received, and the Warners brass approved Friedkin for The Exorcist before Blatty could just, like, drop his messy drama bomb on Carson. Blatty is underestimating his power. He, yeah, he really is. What is going on? <laughs> he made a deal with the devil. His mom made a deal yeah. with the devil to get him to Georgetown. <laughs> yeah. And then the devil took her. That's why she died. So Friedkin then came on board for $500,000 and 10% of Blatty's share of the net profits. Once Friedkin was confirmed, Blatty presented him with an already finished screenplay. And excited Friedkin read the script and was horrified to find that, like Gunn, it was, in his opinion, terrible. The Iraq prologue that set the mood of the novel was gone, and the story was full of flashbacks and unnecessary red herrings. Blatty admitted that he'd struggled to adapt the novel, believing it could never be filmed as written. Together, they came to the conclusion that they had to start from scratch. So without a screenplay, Friedkin hired production manager David Salvin to come up with a budget and assemble a crew. Blatty, Friedkin, and Salvin then headed to Georgetown for location scouting. The descriptions of Georgetown in The Exorcist were all taken directly from Blatty's memory, including the house Chris and Reagan McNeil rent, which was a real home owned by wealthy Democratic Party contributor Florence Mahoney. Friedkin was friends with Jack Valenti, president of the Motion Picture Association of America and former aide to President Lyndon B. Johnson. So using Valenti's influence, Mahoney was persuaded to let them film exterior shots on her property. However, one of the few liberties Blatty had taken was the house's proximity to the so-called Hitchcock Steps. It wasn't physically possible to fall from any window onto the steps, so a massive false front was built onto the side of the house, placing Reagan's bedroom window directly over the staircase below. It's a big-ass house. Like, it's big. Yeah, so basically, so basically the entire, like, side of the house that you see in the iconic shot with um, Father Marin in silhouette, where you've got Reagan's window and everything, that was all like a false front that they attached to the side of the house. I'm sure the neighbors love that. So during initial location scouting in Georgetown, the production also sought permission to film at Georgetown University. This was granted easily, as Blatty was a bit of a pride of the school, and the university president, Father Robert J. Henley, believed in the authenticity of the Roland Doe case. Uh, Henley was also friends with Father Bodern and Father Tim Halloran, one of the six priests who had assisted Bodern in the Doe exorcism. He was able to provide Friedkin with the diaries Bodern had mentioned in his letter to Blatty. Within two months, the Georgetown locations had been chosen, the second draft script was complete, and a crew had been assembled, and that was pretty much the end of the easy part of this production. So now I guess we can move on to casting. First was Chris McNeil, Reagan's mother, who is also a movie star on location in Georgetown. In the movie, Chris's film is depicted as kind of a generic campus protest story, but in the novel, <laughs> which I read for this episode, it's described more specifically as a musical comedy remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that also somehow incorporates a campus protest narrative, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I can't even imagine what that would be. That was a real missed opportunity for the for the scene that we see we're shooting on campus. This should have been one of the musical sequences. They should have just brought out Jimmy Stewart. Wheeled him out. Jimmy just falls down the steps, ends up with his neck on backwards, just like Burke Dennings. So Chris was based on Blatty's friend Shirley MacLaine, who had starred in the film adaptation of his book John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, back in 1965. The studio first offered the role to Audrey Hepburn, who was receptive but was living in Rome at the time and asked if the movie could be shot there, and Friedkin was like, no. 
uh, I don't want to deal with language barriers. We're not doing that. So they turned down Audrey Hepburn. Next, they approached Anne Bancroft, who was pregnant, and asked Warners to wait a year for her. And they also said no to that one. Finally, they sent the script to Jane Fonda, who responded with a single telegram that read, quote, why would anyone want to make this piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit? She didn't feel that way about Georgia Rule. <laughs> yes. Lindsay Lohan. That was art. That was a passion project. Look, you all get to a point where you have to go back on your, your values. You know, sometimes you just need that cash money. So Blatty suggested simply hiring Shirley MacLaine herself, but she just appeared in a movie called The Possession of Joel Delaney, and Friedkin thought that was one too many possession movies in quick succession. Uh, during the search, he received a call from Ellen Burstyn, a stage and TV actress who'd gained some recognition for her work in The Last Picture Show, but obviously had nowhere near the box office clout. Still, Burstyn insisted she was destined to play Chris McNeil and begged Friedkin to meet her. So he did, and he found her to be, quote, passionate, intense, focused, and highly intelligent with an acute understanding of the novel. Nevertheless, he was concerned that the studio would hesitate because she was not a major star. Uh, he was right about that. They weren't big on it, but they had, like, no other options, so they gave her the role. Could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ, won't somebody no, help me? No, you don't me? see. You don't understand. Oh, Your daughter. God, can't you help her? Just help her. <laughs> So the second protagonist of The Exorcist is Father Damien Carrots. Carrots. Uh, <laughs> the priest and psychiatrist at Georgetown whom Chris McNeil turns to when the medical establishment fails to help Reagan. Carrots, as you may have figured out by now, was Blatty's self-insert character. Both men are Catholics raised in poverty by immigrant mothers with whom they share intense bonds and who begin to question their faiths when their mothers die. I was going to say, he's definitely Demi when you were talking about his bond with his mother. I'm like... Ah, uh, yes, I see. Yeah, and they yeah. have the, the same name, Mary Blatty, Mary Karras. Oh, yeah. Delivering the sermon, yeah. Fuck, I didn't even notice. Uh, Roy Scheider, hot off an Oscar nomination for The French Connection, was one of the first names to be considered. He wanted the part, and it was cool with Friedkin for obvious reasons, but Blatty felt he was too unsympathetic to portray Karras. Uh, lest you think Blatty had the right idea, however, his suggestion was Marlon Brando. <laughs> whom Friedkin shut down immediately is too distracting. Friedkin also rejected Jack Nicholson before casting director Nessa Hyams suggested Stacey Keach, a distinguished young stage actor who had just appeared in John Huston's boxing drama Fat City. Blatty and Friedkin met with Keach and they liked him and they told Warners to just go ahead and sign him. So with Keach on board as Karis, Friedkin headed to New York City to scout more locations. While he was there, he read a review of a play called That Championship Season written by 33-year-old Jason Miller. So the play was about discord and disillusion arising at the 20-year reunion of a Catholic high school basketball team. And I felt that it um, just reeked of failed Catholicism. It would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the Tony Award for Best Play in 1973, but at the time of Friedkin's visit, it hadn't yet made the move to Broadway. And Miller was still a mostly unknown playwright and actor working odd jobs to support his wife Linda, who was the daughter of Jackie Gleason, and their sons one of whom grew up to be Jason Patrick, which I always fucking forget. It's it's weird. What a pedigree. What a Hollywood pedigree. So Friedkin decided he had to go see the play, quote, possibly because it was about basketball. He was a big basketball guy. I guess he still is. He's not dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah, this isn't coming out for a month. We'll see. Quote, possibly because it was about basketball, but more likely because of fate. So he loved it and was fascinated by Miller, so he asked the Warners casting director in New York to set up a meeting. Miller came to see Friedkin at his hotel room. Friedkin was ill with a cold and there were prescriptions everywhere. And as he recalled, quote, 
Jason later told me he thought I was a pill freak. He had no idea why I wanted to meet him. Perhaps he thought it was to buy his play for the movies. When he came to my suite at the Sherry, he was distant and reserved. He was also short, about 5'7", and I thought he was stoned. I told him how much I loved his play, and he thanked me. When I told him I was planning a film of The Exorcist, he seemed only mildly interested. He was so overwhelmed with all the attention being afforded that championship season and had not read the novel. What are people just not reading it, huh? You know, it used to be harder to pretend that you read a book, though, so they had to be more upfront about it. You know, you couldn't Google it in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, you had to be like, sorry, I haven't, I haven't read your book. So they parted on mostly mundane terms. Stacy Keach remained locked in as Karis, and Friedkin went back to L.A. Sometime later, he received a call from Miller, who had finally gotten around to reading The Exorcist. Much like Ellen Burstyn claiming she was destined to play Chris McNeil, Miller told Friedkin in no uncertain terms that, quote, that guy is me. He asked for another meeting, but Friedkin, who apparently had suddenly remembered the existence of Stacy Keach, was like, sorry, buddy, we've got a guy. Um, Miller was insistent and agreed to pay his own way to California to shoot a screen test. So the test shot with Ellen Burstyn didn't impress Friedkin much in the moment, but upon screening it the next morning, he was taken with Miller's camera presence, and as he recalled, quote, The camera loved his dark good looks, haunted eyes, quiet intensity, and low compassionate voice. He had a quality reminiscent of the late John Garfield. Because there's the bit in the movie yeah. when yeah. Kinderman's like, I'm your John Garfield in Body and Soul. Father Karras? Have we met? No, we haven't met, but they said I could tell that you look like a boxer. William F. Kinderman, homicide. What's this all about? Yeah, it's true, you do look like a boxer. John Garfield, in body and soul. Exactly, John Garfield. People tell you that, Father. So people tell you you look like Paul Newman? Always. So that would be a Friedkin special, because in the novel, uh, Kinderman compares him to Paul Newman and Sal Mineo, I believe. So to the studio's horror, he insisted that they then pay off Stacy Keach and hire Jason Miller for the role. Man, sucks to be Stacy Keach, huh? I mean, he's still got the money, so... Yeah, but, I mean... He's not he didn't get to be in the exorcist. Though. Yeah. <laughs> so Father Lancaster Marin, at least, was easy. Blatty had based the elderly priest on two famous academics, Gerald Lancaster Harding, a British archaeologist who was instrumental in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and whom Blatty had met in Lebanon. And this is going to be a hard name for me. Hold on. Pierre Tillard de Chardin, a Jesuit priest and scientist whose philosophical writings attempted to reconcile religion and science. Upon seeing a photo of Harding, Friedkin instantly thought of Max von Sydow, despite the 30-year age difference between actor and character. So the script was sent to von Sydow at his home in Sweden, and he immediately accepted. Of course, my approach was colored by my, say, Protestant upbringing. To me, the devil has never been scary. I, I was brought up with Scandinavian fairy tales and folk tales, and in many of those, the devil is uh, kind of ridiculous. Uh, he's always a loser. Fate also intervened in the casting of Lieutenant Kinderman, the police officer looking into the death of Chris McNeil's alcoholic director, Burke Dennings, working on a tip from an unspecified person who believed an unspecified actor would be good for an unspecified role in the movie. Friedkin and Blatty attended an unspecified play featuring said actor, but they were unimpressed. 
however, they noticed Lee J. Cobb sitting in the audience a few rows ahead. So Cobb had originated the role of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman on Broadway and had earned Oscar nominations for his work in On the Waterfront and The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, seeing him in person, Friedkin and Blatty zeroed in on him for Kinderman. Man, that's a lot of redacted, like... yeah. That was very frustrating. I want to know. Freaking does this Give all the time. Give me the details. Freaking does this all the time when I was doing Boys in the Band, you know, and he'd be like, oh, and then I had this guy, you know, and he was terrible, but I'm not going to say who it was. So we had to fire him. And it's like, I want to know. Give me the dirt. It's just a big old tease. He is. The ultimate tease is not haven't made a good movie in 25 years. That's, that's the <laughs> ultimate tease. Uh, so Burke Dennings was based on J. Lee Thompson, the British filmmaker who directed Shirley MacLaine in Blatty's John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. Dennings was played by Jack McGowan, an Irish actor with a long stage career behind him. There seems to be an alien pubic hair in my jeans. I beg your pardon? Never seen it before in my life. Have you? And in, I guess, maybe kind of the first um, the first entry in the so-called exorcist curse, McGowan died of influenza at the age of 54, not long after he completed filming. Reflecting the documentary style that had appealed to Blatty in the first place, Friedkin also hired several non-actors. The president of Georgetown University was played by Father Thomas Birmingham, the professor who had brought the Washington Post article to Blatty's attention when he'd first grown interested in the case in 1949. So I guess Blatty was just keeping in touch with all of these priests from his college days, which is kind of weird, but... He's like, dang, like in Taken, how he has that, like, bad squad, <laughs> Well, he's got this, like, priest squad that he's just got, like, on speed dial... And he's like, hey, you want to hang out and talk theology? Everyone needs a squad. We're a squad. We're rock squad, specifically. Um, yeah. <laughs> could be worse, you know. Your, your squad could be like the Hollywood Republicans, like Patricia Heaton and Tom Selleck. That'd be a terrible squad. Probably tip pretty bad, too. <laughs> Unlike us. Unlike us. We're good tippers. So, Blatty also introduced Friedkin to Father Bill O'Malley, another priest friend of his, who had once told him the character of Father Dyer was a cliché. Uh, the character of Father Dyer in the book is this, like, dorky, wisecracking kind of nerd guy who wears Snoopy sweatshirts when he's out of uniform, which is not necessarily what I think when I think priest, but to each their own, I guess. He's a cool priest. <laughs> he's, he's a cool priest. He's probably got a guitar. Uh, in any case, Friedkin offered the role of Dyer to O'Malley, who also served as an advisor on the film. Karis's mother, obviously based in large part on the late Mary Blatty, was played by Vasiliki Maliaros, who was discovered in a Greek restaurant by extras casting director Lou DeGimo. I can't do names, man. As with the death of Jack McGowan, uh, her death shortly after filming is often cited as being part of the curse, but she was 89 years old and died of natural causes, so, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's how, that's, that one's a bit of a stretch. To me, living to 89 is a curse, so <laughs> just flip it around that way. So Dejimo also, and this is kind of like an awful story to me, uh, also found a non-actor for the brief role of the beggar Karis encounters while waiting for the train. Father, would you help an old altar boy? I'm a Catholic. They basically scoured bars all over New York to fill the part. They finally settled on a man named Vincent Russell, who apparently, at least according to Friedkin, was only in his 40s. He looks much older. Mm -hmm. um, he was an alcoholic patron of the White Rose Bar, and they kept him well supplied with booze for about a week until it was time to film his scene. Um, all of this just makes me very sad. Yeah, it's not good. They filmed the scene at the Grand Central subway station. It took about five hours. 
Russell wore his own clothes and kept asking to go home, by which he apparently meant the bar. Months later, background noise made it necessary to bring him back in to dub over his line. I don't know how they tracked him down. I guess he really did just kind of live at that bar. According to Friedkin, he had no recollection of filming the scene in the first place. It took another two hours to record the line, and upon finishing the recording session, at least this is a bit of levity, he got to his feet and exclaimed, I ain't gonna work for that director no more. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure many an actor have actually expressed that particular wish before. Yeah, especially about Friedkin. Of course, as Mike Nichols had noted, the success of the film lived or died on the casting of the 12-year-old possession victim, Regan McNeil. For four months in 1972, casting directors all over the country taped more than 8,000 auditions by child actresses aged 11 to 13. Friedkin, being Friedkin, claims to have watched at least a minute or two of every single tape. That sounds like a lot. I don't know. The production sought an actress who seemed stable and mature enough to handle the shocking subject matter she would be expected to perform. This turned out to be a big ask, and eventually they started looking at 14 to 16-year-old actresses who could play younger. So, this is a fucking nightmare. I hate this. I don't even want to read it out loud, but I have to. For the show. Yeah, I gotta do it. So, Friedkin has sort of this go-to account of his first meeting with Linda Blair, which I personally find horrifying. Uh... He seems to think it's, like, funny and charming in the way that men of his generation always seem to think this shit is funny and charming. So I'm just going to read it straight from his memoir because it skews me out so much I didn't bother to put it into my own words. Quote, One afternoon at my office in New York, my secretary buzzed me. There's a woman out here named Eleanor Blair. She doesn't have an appointment, but she brought in her daughter and wonders if you'd see her. She was smart but not precocious, cute but not beautiful, a normal, happy 12-year-old girl. Her name was Linda Blair. Her mother was a quiet, pleasant, not a stage mother. Linda was represented by an agency that suggested 10 other girls to us, but not her. She had done some modeling, no acting. Her main interest was training and showing horses, for which she won a lot of blue ribbons. She was a straight-A student in Westport, Connecticut. I found her adorable, irresistible. I asked her if she knew what The Exorcist was about. Well, she said thoughtfully, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. I nodded. What sort of bad things? Well, she pushes a man out her bedroom window, hits her mother across the face, and she masturbates with a crucifix. I looked at her mother. She seemed to realize that her daughter was special. Do you know what that means? I asked her. What? To masturbate. It's like jerking off, isn't it? She answered without hesitation, giggling a little. I looked again at her mother. Unflappable. Have you ever done that? I asked Belinda. Sure, haven't you? She shot back. I'd found Reagan. So... Eesh. The minute I read that, and unfortunately it was not the first time, because like I said, he tells this fucking story all the time, uh, the Kill Bill sirens went off in my head, because... Yeah, as someone, it's definitely not an appropriate thing to be. As someone who has been a 12-year-old girl, I do not believe that any allegedly normal 12-year-old girl would speak to a strange man like that. I don't think this happened. No. I felt vindicated when I watched the 1998 documentary about the making of the movie called The Fear of God, because in that documentary, Linda Blair pretty much states... Like, she's not talking about this story, but she basically just says that, like, she had no idea what she was doing in that scene, right? Like, no context for it. I didn't understand what masturbation was at that age. Um, so I didn't understand, you know, I had, there was a box and a sponge and Cairo syrup with red food coloring. And uh, that was between my legs. So I just had to put the cross into the box. That's all I was doing. I had no idea what it was until many years later so for that reason but then it's like even more like making up that story is horrifying yeah dining out on that story is yeah yeah still not great yeah he he seems to think it's cute i don't think it's cute i think it's gross maybe he should be in jail <laughs> i think every male director should probably be in jail 
just, just yeah. be safe. Well, it definitely, I mean, to this day, Friedkin's a pretty vocal Woody Allen defender and makes a lot more sense reading that one, uh, yeah. knowing that Oof. he thinks it's like charming yeah. to tell that story about a little girl, which I assume he made up. Is it true? Is it true that Linda Blair's mother wasn't a stage mother? I just feel like anyone who would put their child forward for this particular role has to smack Yeah. Stage well, yeah. You know? I mean, especially... Like, I find that very hard yeah. to believe. I agree. I'm not vibing with Friedkin's account at all, so I think he's probably just, you know, trying to gild his own lily here. Yeah, because then it makes it sound like you discovered her, yeah. He makes a habit of kind of, like, mythologizing his own shit. Like, I, I like a lot of my research, I researched with a lot of sources for this, I really did, but his book is kind of the goldmine for, like, covering everything, but I take a lot of it with a grain of salt because... He's not the most reliable narrator. Shockingly. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just immensely distrustful of anyone who puts their kid into that yeah. kind of environment to begin with. No matter how, like, you know, even if it's, you know, straight up children's entertainment, Disney Channel style. Mm. Well, I mean, we've all seen what happened at fucking Nickelodeon, so. Well, in any case, they did cast her. Uh, they did a test with Ellen Burstyn and she got the role. The interior of the McNeil house was constructed on a soundstage in New York City. Friedkin initially hired designer John Robert Lloyd, who he'd worked with on the night they raided Minsky's and the boys in the band. And then... Again, here's, um, this is kind of a situation where, you know, you gotta, you gotta take his, his story with a grain of salt. He says he instructed Lloyd to design a colonial style home with large rooms, walls that would allow for free camera movement and no pink or chartreuse. Arriving to check out the set in its early stages of construction, Friedkin was then appalled to find curved archways, small rooms with low ceilings and pink walls. And <laughs> then this is batshit crazy. In addition, he claims Lloyd had photos taken of himself with Linda Blair in character as Reagan and her absent father. According to Friedkin, quote, I hadn't asked him to do this, nor did I see him as the ideal person to portray the absent father. Literally hundreds of photos were taken with John and Linda, none of which were usable. When I confronted him, he had no response, no excuse. It was a nightmare, but I had to fire him. So that's a concept. You know, that almost in a weird way sounds true to me, unlike the Linda Blair story, because because of how incredibly, as we talked about in, in the Boys of the Band episode, over-decorated the main set piece. <laughs> That's that true. Movie, you know? Mm -hmm. There is such a reliance yeah. on photographs that to me that almost that almost sounds real. And there's also a lot of chartreuse in, in, in weird pinks. You know what I mean? There is a very strong color. It's so fucking crazy, though, to think of this production designer just going out without telling anyone and taking hundreds of pictures where he poses as the dad. <laughs> Yeah, like, so hundreds. That's the thing. With How small many do child? you need? Well, you know, these are more adult men who shouldn't be allowed yeah. around twelve-year-old girls. So uh, that sounds that sounds crazy, but it's so specifically crazy, so specifically crazy. And from what we know about this man's previous work, it, it uh, rings true. <laughs> it does ring true. At least a kernel of it. I at least a kernel of it. And that strikes me as the kind of thing that would, in fact, get probably eventually get you fired. People put up with a lot, but then that, <laughs> that's, that's just that's a line too weird. Too far. Well, the rumor on the set at the time was apparently that Friedkin had concocted the whole conflict to buy himself more time before filming. Um, that's also very Friedkin. I believe that, too. <laughs> yeah. I believe all these things. I believe both, both are true. In any case, Lloyd was replaced with Bill Malley, who had done only television work and who Friedkin hired essentially sight unseen because, quote, he had nothing to lose and he seemed pleasant enough. Uh, similarly, he had initially hired exorcist cameraman Owen Roisman to shoot The French Connection without seeing a single frame of his work because, and I quote, this is a direct quote, I cannot put too much emphasis on vibes. <laughs> 
when that's a problem with the industry, you know, all this PC bullshit, you can't vibe anymore. <laughs> you know, you can't go like, I'm hiring him because of his vibes. And then people go, he's a registered sex offender. And you go, he's got good vibes. Look at the defense that people have about that. The guy who made the, um, the Jeepers Creepers movies. It's like, well, his movies are good. It's like, they're not that good. They aren't that good. They're not good at all, I'd say. fucking Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, that's probably exactly the same argument. That the, he's got good vibes. <laughs> the five-man special effects team was headed by Marcel Vercutera, whose previous credits were Support Your Local Sheriff, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and Deliverance. He moved his family into the basement of the soundstage, and his crew worked 12 to 15-hour days, creating dozens of now-iconic special effects that we'll talk about later on. That is a big departure from those movies. Yeah. He's got range. He's got good vibes. Well, sometimes the vibes is right. <laughs> and sometimes they're just not right at all. That's the millennial reboot of The Price is Right. The vibe, <laughs> the vibe is right. Is right. <laughs> so the movie also required some highly detailed makeup. For this, they brought on Dick Smith, who had previously created elaborate old age makeup for Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man. thought you were going to say Tootsie. <laughs> Imagine... And Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Most crucial was Regan's demonic makeup, which was designed around the conceit that Regan had been slashing herself in the face and her disfigurements were caused by increasingly gangrenous wounds. It took three hours to apply every morning and another hour to remove. Smith also had to turn the 43-year-old Max Moncito into 70-something Father Marin using several layers of latex, which took four hours every morning and an hour to remove. I mean, they got that right. His skin looks like it's paper thin and it's gross. It's absolutely disgusting how thin his skin looks. And to be honest, Max Moncito always just looked fucking old. He looked old. He's never looked young. Like in uh, Hannah and her sister, speaking of Woody Allen, in Hannah and her sisters, and it's like, you're supposed to believe that Barbara Hershey has been like, you know, with him this whole time. And it's like, he looks like Mr. Burns. <laughs> and not in a sexy dongles, you know, way. In a very prosaic way. That would be Douglas Fairbanks Jr., uh, specifically in Ghost Story, when we refer to the... Uh, Jesus Mr. Christ. He does look like Mr. Burns in that. But like, if Mr... Mr. Burns had gone on holiday, like that tropical holiday with Smithers and got a tan. That, <laughs> that's what Douglas Fairbanks Jr. looks Orange like in that movie. King. Tangerine Dream. That's why he looks so much older than everybody else in that movie, except for Melvin Douglas, who is like literally on the brink of death. I was going to say, Melly looks <laughs> fuck. Melly looks like, like, like a, a eggplant that's about to get tossed in the supermarket. <laughs> he looks so bad. He looks so, so bad. bad. I mean, he did die immediately fucking after. Oh, well, that's but... why. <laughs> I mean... He saw himself on, on screen. He was like, he had to check out. It was too He was like, fuck, my ears look so big, and then died. That's... Which is sad. That is sad. Sad for <laughs> Melody. There's hope if your ears are too big for your head. <laughs> There's always light at the end of the tunnel. Just not like around your head, though, because your ears are casting a big shadow. But keep moving forward. What, the light at the end of the tunnel, is that like, it'll end someday? Uh, yeah, because you'll die. <laughs> we all die eventually. Some you don't us, need ears when you're dead. Don't need ears when you're dead. Some of us, we fall out of windows. Some of us, we die on the toilet. Some of us die after being harangued endlessly by William Friedkin for a couple of weeks of our lives. You know, that's just that's just what happens. That's why the old lady kicked the bucket. Tired of listening to freaking talk. So principal photography began in August 1972 at the Goldwater Memorial Hospital with the scene where Karis visits his institutionalized mother. 
Friedkin kind of tells on himself a little bit again when he recalls that many of the women in this scene were actual patients he filmed with a hidden camera, which seems illegal, but I don't know what was going on in 1972. I mean, I don't think there were many protections for people with mental illness because like... Absolutely not. And then Reagan made it worse as his pension, his zest for life. Yeah. His, his zest for making, making shit worse. Yeah, I mean, it really bit him in the ass when he lost his mind, so... Some would say that was karma. So, in another incident often listed as part of the exorcist curse, Linda Blair's grandfather died during the first week of filming. Though, once again, I would argue that a grandpa dying is not necessarily a rarity. No, it's sad. It's sad for her, but, like, old people die. Yeah. Well, more convincing in making the case for a curse was the destruction of the entire soundstage set in a mysterious fire, which does sound a little cursed. Of course, on a 15-month uh, uh, schedule, as we had, you certainly expect the laws of probability would uh, uh, presume that, that certain things would happen. But in my 32 years of, of, of making films, I've never had a set burned down. And we did on The Exorcist. We had a, a fire, still a mystery. The set caught on fire one weekend when no one was there. I remember that was terrible. Shut down. I think it shut us down for about six weeks. They couldn't find a, a, an electrical problem. They couldn't find an arsonist. They couldn't find a, uh, any any uh, substantial reason that, that that occurred. Friedkin awoke one morning to a phone call from David Salvin, who told him not to bother coming into work that day because the set had burned down overnight. No one had any idea why. I mean, that's a pretty chill call to get, isn't it? <laughs> like, I think you could probably, I guess, be a little bit more professional when you're getting that call. Just being like, oh, don't bother coming into work. The whole entire set <laughs> burnt down by. Like, huh? I want some context for that. Oh, you act like if you didn't get the phone call tomorrow, you'd be like, okay, and then go back to bed. Well, considering my office is now my house, <laughs> I think I'd be aware if it fucking burnt down. Well, Okay. Well, no one had any idea why. Uh, Only a night watchman had been present at the time. He described seeing smoke seeping out from under the door and opening it to find the flames already raging. The insurance company could only come up with a scenario in which one of the pigeons often found in the building's rafters had flown into a light box and caused a short circuit. Beyond that, no further explanation was ever found. And they never found a roast chi- uh, roast pigeon? They did not. Roast chicken. I mean, I'm going to say maybe the night watchman just wasn't being honest about smoking. He wasn't watching. Uh, they should check the Warner Brothers financials because this sounds to me like a universal backlot fire that just happened to accidentally destroy all their master tapes while they weren't paying attention to their fire that was definitely an accident somebody check those books somebody check those financials i want an audit i mean out of the things that have been listed as the curse this one's probably the most cursed so far yeah it's not just like old people dying (laughs) it took six weeks to rebuild the set from scratch meaning they would have to shoot other new york scenes in the duration but since most of the film outside of the mcneil house was scheduled for georgetown the options were limited Uh, They spent about a week filming the scenes in the physician's office, Reagan's medical tests, and everything at the Jesuit residence. They used Fordham University instead of Georgetown. But once these were done, they had to shut down production for more than a month while everyone remained on the payroll. Oh, the dream. (laughs) The arteriogram was Friedkin's idea. He witnessed the procedure at the NYU Medical Center Department of Radiology, and Blatty then added it to the script to underline the medical establishment's inability to help Reagan. I gotta say, all of the scenes filmed at the hospital... Fucking horrific. I am so glad 
I did not have to experience medical care in the 70s. I know it's old hat to say at this point, but those are truly the most disturbing scenes in the entire movie. They are horrifying. You know what other barbaric medical procedure happened in the 1970s? When they split Dwayne and Belial. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of trauma happening uh, in the 70s with, with child surgery. The child surgery industry. <laughs> the ch- I don't think it was an industry. Yeah, it is. Uh, Not like the fucking lobotomy industry. Yeah, they giving children lobotomies. The child, the ch- child lobotomy industry. Big bucks, big bucks in the in the, in the child donkey brain industry. Fuck it off. <laughs> In an arteriogram, dye is injected to make small arteries visible in an x-ray, which can be used to detect brain damage. So the procedure shown in the film was performed by a real neurosurgeon using injection and blood spurt effects created by Marcel Vercoteur. Actual radiology technician Paul Bateson also appears in the film. He's the bearded guy who, like, helps prepare Reagan for her arteriogram. He positions her on the table. He applies the wires to her shoulders. He's the one who, like, jokes about them being sticky. So in 1977, a few years after the movie... Variety film reviewer Addison Verrill was found dead in his Greenwich Village apartment. Despite being just one of several murders of gay men in Greenwich Village around this time, the police unsurprisingly wrote it off as a robbery gone wrong. I mean, they're great cops. Yeah. Village Voice reporter Arthur Bell, however, noted in his coverage that nothing of value had been stolen. So a week later, Bell received a phone call from a man claiming to have murdered Verrill. He explained that the two had met at a gay bar, spent the night partying together, and gone back to Verrill's apartment to hook up, but that quote, and this (laughs) this is rough... Something hit me. Addison hadn't been reciprocal. It wasn't just the sex act itself that wasn't reciprocal, it was the soul act too. I wanted a lasting thing, something that would go beyond sex into friendship, a lover, or marriage. I can't fathom exactly what I did. I concede that it was my alcoholism. There's a stigma placed on alcoholics. But I needed money, and I hated the rejection. It was the rejection that triggered things. Something flared up in my head. I decided to do something I'd never done before. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out. Then I went into a drawer in the right-hand side of the kitchen, removed a knife, and stuck it into Addison's chest. The man on the phone didn't identify himself, and he told Bell that he wanted to atone for his crime, but he couldn't because he would, quote, lose his license. Bell immediately called the police, who confirmed a number of details that only the killer would have known, and provided Bill with protection for the night while he awaited a potential second call. Uh, The phone rang at 11 p.m., and the voice on the other end identified the killer as Paul Bateson, radiologist and one-time minor player in The Exorcist. So Bateson was taken into custody, he gave a statement similar to the one he had given Bell. Uh, he would later attempt to recant and maintained his innocence throughout his trial. The prosecution tried and failed to pin six other murders and dismemberments in Greenwich Village on him, but he was ultimately sentenced to at least 20 years in prison for the murder of Verrill. He was released in 2003 and seems to have vanished from the records ever since. So yeah, we got a real murderer in this movie, which I actually didn't know about. Yeah, I mean, I knew about it, but like, it's rough. It's real rough. Yeah. It does lead into the idea that there is a curse, but I mean, the, the whole concept of curses, I don't believe in point blank, but like, I think the sheer amount of people that work on a movie, there's bound to be some fucking nutcases in every single one. I was just gonna say, a lot of people really underestimate how many people are involved in a movie. I think people think it's some sort of like, it's like a, a whitewater rafting expedition or something where you have like <laughs> 10 people. It's like, no, there's hundreds of people involved. 
thousands sometimes, um, if you count extras, not to mention all the people who work in administrative capacities at the studios and stuff who are tangentially, you know, affiliated with stuff, people in distribution, people in exhibition, people in marketing. But the extras definitely does have a pretty a high concentration. Yeah. amount of fucked up shit. Just through attrition, I think there was... Three or four people died. There are a couple of unfortunate deaths during the filming. There were nine deaths, which is an enormous amount of deaths connected with the film. Some very directly, like the actor Jack McGowan, who gets killed in the film, completed shooting and died. It's very simple. If you have a production that lasts two weeks or three weeks, nothing happens. But if you have a production that lasts for a year or nine months, a lot of things has, have to happen. Uh, accidents one way or the other. I was also thinking um, Friedkin kind of had this thing on The Exorcist with hiring, or I guess using just regular non-actors. So you've got a higher concentration, too, of just, like, fucking normies who could easily commit a murder in three years. Like, who knows? Oh, yeah, definitely. You're saying this like many Hollywood stars have not committed murders. I was going to say, maybe Stacey Keach would have committed a murder. Because if we're looking at it, the concentration of, like, just Hollywood celebrities who have committed murders is quite high. Arthur Bell. I didn't, I don't think I mentioned his name, but in the Boys of the Band episode, he is the one who attended a lecture that Friedkin was giving about making the boys in the band and freaking started describing a daisy chain in detail oh, fuck. Um, that he witnessed on, fri- <laughs> on when the you know when the boys when the boys from the band took him out to fire island right for like to see what he was getting himself into and he describes the daisy chain and Arthur balance like the the film students and people who are going to this lecture are like laughing because like oh it's so funny the gays are so funny that arthur bell got all mad and like was like freaking's a homophobe uh this is this isn't good for the, you know, whatever he thought, you know, he was not a fan of the boys in the band to begin with, but he particularly did not like Friedkin. So I do like this kind of callback, bitch, thought you saw the last of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid I've got more uh, bad stuff. Oh, things, cool. things continued to be very, very bad. When Jason Miller's toddler son, Jordan, was hit by a motorcycle at Rockaway Beach in November, filming was again suspended while Jordan was in critical condition with a 50% chance of survival. Uh, During this time, Miller spent long nights with the priest at Fordham praying for his son, and fortunately, Jordan ultimately recovered. I mean, I would prefer, like, no kids getting hurt. Yeah. Just in general. Generally, I think I'd say we're a a no kids getting hurt podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Von Sito then arrived from Sweden, but right before shooting was scheduled to begin with him, he re- received word that his brother had passed away and immediately had to fly back. How I don't know how old his brother, his brother was. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> his brother, who was also 87 years old. So on the day he returned, they filmed one of the most iconic shots in movie history, Father Marin arriving at Chris McNeil's house to perform the exorcism. Friedkin based the shot on the René Magritte painting Empire of Light 2, and it was achieved by building a large platform behind Reagan's window in the extension that had been added to Florence Mahoney's house. So a single light was placed on the platform and aimed at Von Sito through the window. They spent an entire day perfecting the lighting for the scene. They wetted down the streets. They had fog machines going. And then they filmed it in a single take. It's awesome. It's great. It's a fucking awesome shot. I have it on a t-shirt. I have it on a pair of socks. Twins. Wow. When we finally are allowed to see each other, we should wear them. Yeah. Tiff, you need to get, like, I don't know, a hat or something with it on it. What be funny for Todd to have that on? Socks, a shirt. A fanny pack. A fanny pack, yeah. Maybe, like, a jumpsuit on the back. <laughs> 
you know? Where you would put the prison that you're in. <laughs> but instead, <laughs> it's just it's Father Marin. A onesie. I don't know. A onesie would be cool and then have a snap crotch. To make bathroom trips easier. I'm yeah. not comfortable with this. Uh, too bad. You got to test your boundaries. Um, <laughs> grave digging. That's what the whole the whole trip is for. Yeah. It's coming out of your shell. Exactly. Well, technically coming out of your cage. <laughs> So on their final night in Georgetown, they filmed Father Karras's jump from Reagan's bedroom window onto the steps below. The leap was performed by stuntman Chuck Waters, who choreographed it to be done in multiple sections. So first he leapt from Reagan's window into a pile of pads and boxes 25 feet below. Then he took a series of four tumbles, like me, uh, basically from landing to landing, each of which was potentially life-threatening, even though black rubber padding had been applied to the edge of each step. So a point-of-view shot of the fall was achieved using a lightweight camera suspended from a bungee cord. And after the final fall to the bottom of the steps, Waters was replaced by Miller, who lay face down in a puddle of blood. And all the Georgetown kids, with the kid, little little capitalists that they are, they they got the roofs of all the people around there on top of the roofs, and they sold tickets for five bucks a head so you could watch the stunt. <laughs> See, when we were watching this just before, I did make many jokes about this being you. <laughs> yeah. Falling down some stairs. She said specifically, Todd bust an ass down the staircase. That's how she phrased it. I mean, I would. I would. I wouldn't have to fall from a window to do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically they filmed it. He had to fall like four times and just kept falling down the stairs. It's a tough day. So after that, they had to film Karis's death scene in which Father Dyer administers his friend's last rites. It was 3 a.m. by the time they finished the jump. Uh, it was cold. The pressure was on. And, of course, Bill O'Malley wasn't even an actor to begin with. He was a priest. So they were really struggling with building up the right emotion and energy for such a crucial scene. So after 20 unsuccessful takes, Friedkin recalls, quote, I feel like Friedkin hasn't done anything to make this scene happen. Well, he's going to do yeah. something now. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. What's he going to do? I called a halt whispered to the crew what I was about to do, and told them to be ready to roll on a second's notice. I then took O'Malley aside and grasped him by the shoulders. I said, Bill, I want you to listen to me carefully. Look at me. He was shaking from the cold and his increasing anxiety. I don't know if I can do this, he said, already on the verge of the emotion. Bill, you can do this, I said with conviction, though I wasn't sure. I held his shoulders tighter. Do you love me? Yes. He was trembling, not knowing where I was heading. Say it, I said firmly, pulling him to me in an embrace. Yes, I love you, Billy. You know it. I love you, I said. At which point I slapped him across the face as hard as I could and pushed him to his knees next to the prone body of Jason Miller. I signaled Ricky Bravo to roll the camera and shouted, action. O'Malley burst into tears and performed the scene. This is what they should have done to um, Fred McMurray. <laughs> yeah, that was originally uh, Mitchell Lysen's plan. And then he realized how deeply unsexy it was that Fred McMurray had been afraid to tell a woman I love you. And then he decided to kind of dial back on that. Which I still can't get over. It's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, as Friedkin continues, the crew was in stunned silence when I yelled cut and went to O'Malley, helping to his feet, once again embracing him. Thank you, he said. Thank you for that. Oh, God, thank you. He has told this story fondly many times since. This is not a solution I recommend to aspiring directors, but there are times when you have to have the solution to whatever problems arise. Occasionally and rarely, the solution is as drastic as the one I've described, which I have used on only three occasions in a career spanning more than 40 years. I want to know them. 
one of the occasions. <laughs> he didn't say. He always does that. He never elaborates. Uh, he always talks so much about stuff I don't want to hear about. I know. And then never on the good stuff. I, I'm guessing because it didn't, like, happen the way that he retells it. You know, okay, I'm just going to say this. Some people like getting slapped in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and some people... Enter the priesthood for different reasons. Well, Friedkin also doesn't deny shooting guns on set, which apparently was fine because he didn't use bullets. Um, quote, Sounds about right. Never with bullets, just blanks. That is something that has been done by film directors for years before I came on the scene. I remember reading about it when I was just starting out. There was an article in Life magazine about George Stevens doing it on the set of The Diary of Anne Frank. It is very <laughs> difficult... <laughs> to ask actors in a film technique to go from a dead start and to create surprise or fear or shock. It's very difficult. Most often it looks corny or unbelievable or like overacting. So as a film director, you will utilize certain techniques to simulate the actions that are real. <laughs> Diary of Anne Frank. Wow. The thing about um, Steven is that I find that very interesting because then he'll employ techniques like when Jean Arthur didn't want to come out of her, her dressing room on like the more the merrier. And it's like you stand outside the door and you're like, Jean, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. Everyone loves you. You're a fantastic actress. The, the fans love you. The studio love We all love you. I love you. Jean, please come out and please, Jean, please finish your scene. And then sometimes you just got to pull out the cap gun and be like, psh, 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 this is my movie. <laughs> you know, you've got to take those different approaches. I think the problem here is that William Friedkin never defaults to the Gene baby, Gene, please, please come out of your dressing room. He just defaults to the slapping. He immediately like, whips out his Glock. He does. He does. Yeah. Worst case scenario. <laughs> They finally wrapped in Georgetown and headed back to the New York soundstage to film the exorcism sequence with Max von Sydow. And this is where they really pulled out all the stops with the special effects. Uh, Reagan's bedroom was constructed in a sort of refrigerated cocoon, so the actor's breath would be visible. They had four air conditioners on top of the cocoon, which were kept on all night, bringing the temperature down to 30 degrees below zero. But after just an hour under the lights, it would climb back up to above freezing, and then they'd have to stop filming, turn off the lights, and bring it back down. I mean, it looks awesome, but it would have been fucking horrible to film in. Yeah, the crew wore insulated ski suits, and most of the actors had long underwear on beneath their costumes, but Linda Blair was... Not that lucky. She just wore her thin nightgown. It's honestly astonishing to me that she didn't fucking die. Yikes. On top of this, after the first day of shooting in the so-called cold room, they screened the dailies and realized that the visible breath wasn't registering on film. Basically, it had to be back or side lit and they hadn't done it properly to show up. So they had to scrap that footage and redo the entire first day with better lighting. So Linda Blair just almost died of hypothermia for no reason that first day. I'd be pissed. I'd be so pissed. So the room was also constructed on a ball bearing, which allowed it to kind of like tilt and wobble. Uh, and it had movable walls and ceilings. A forklift was hidden behind Reagan's bed so it could rise and shake. Uh, her levitation was achieved through the use of very thin piano wire. Wires were also used to send Burst and flying back. In the crucifix scene, she wore a rig under her costume so she could be jerked back when Regan pushes her off the bed. Friedkin, unsatisfied with the first two takes, encouraged the stuntman, without Burstyn's knowledge, to pull as hard as possible, causing her to land roughly on her tailbone so the scream that she lets out in that scene is one of, like, very genuine pain. <gasps> Uh, as she recalled later of Friedkin, he was always very great with me, except when he permanently injured my spine. Man, if only she could get his gun. <laughs> well, oh, it's only got blanks in it, so. Well, I mean, it would still be enough to scare the old shit. She could hit him over the head with the butt, you know? Yeah. The head spinning scene, of course, everyone knows this, was done using a custom dummy constructed by makeup artist Dick Smith. 
who operated it himself and blew cigarette smoke through its mouth to approximate cold breath. Eh, we decided we were going to try it out, so um, put it in the front seat of a taxi in the summertime in New York City. The head would wobble around, so it would look like it was alive. And the people would stare at this thing, and then finally it would just spin its head around, and that was it. <laughs> and then the, tell the cab, get out of here. <laughs> So several of the special effects in the exorcism sequence were the result of a collaboration between Smith and Marcel Verkater's team. Uh, Regan's vomit, famously made of pea soup, was actually mostly oatmeal with the pea soup added for color. It was shot through a tube that extended from a vat under the bed, up through Blair's nightgown, under the thick latex makeup on her neck, and then into what they describe as a mouth harness. I haven't quite figured out what that means. Uh, it sounds uncomfortable. Uh, Regan's bulging neck was achieved using inflatable latex makeup with a hidden stagehand who literally just inhaled and exhaled into a tube that was once again hidden in her clothes. Is that what they did for Susan Strasberg's um, tumor in the Manitou? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> a great film. We'll be covered on this podcast eventually. Uh, to make cuts appear suddenly on her skin, wires were embedded beneath the top layer of makeup and then ripped away to reveal the bloody second layer below, which is a very gruesome effect. I can't look every time. I hate it. Yeah, it's gnarly. I mean, all the effects are gnarly, and I think they're made all the more gnarly because they are practical mm -hmm. effects, but I mean, we say that every every time. But... it's true, and you should say it. And then the appearance of writing on her stomach was done by scratching the words into a false latex stomach then applying heat to it with a blower so they kind of melted back down into the latex and then they play that footage in reverse in the film so it looks like they're rising up. Which when we were watching it, both Candace and I had the same joke. Which was? That like when they lift the, lift the um, nightgown up, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, she's an Audi. <laughs> oh, so full. Belly button moving from any to Audi. So when the exorcism sequence was complete, all that was left was the prologue, which is set in Iraq. Uh, Friedkin was determined to film the prologue on location. However, at this time, the United States had zero diplomatic relations with Iraq. So this is where MPAA President Jack Valenti came to the rescue once again. He suggested that Friedkin try contacting the Iraqi mission to the United Nations. Friedkin took his advice. He spoke with the Iraqi UN representative and was eventually able to secure permission to film in Iraq on the following conditions. First, he could only bring along as many people as absolutely necessary. Second, he had to hire Iraqis to his crew and have them trained in all areas of filmmaking, but specifically, and for reasons that were not elaborated upon, in the making of fake blood. And third, he had to donate a print of the French connection to the Iraqi government. I wonder if the fake blood thing is um, a connection with the whole pig's blood element, you know, in Islam. Because obviously a normal person who was making a movie would just make some sort of synthetic mixture. However, because it's William Friedkin, maybe they knew that he would just slaughter a local livestock and drain into a bucket or some weird shit. So maybe that was it. But um, also the print of the French Connection. I like that. I like that detail. Um, I hope they enjoyed it. I hope they liked the scene in particular where Gene Hackman has that guy up against the wall and he keeps asking, like, you ever pick your toes in Poughkeepsie or whatever? You pick your feet in Poughkeepsie, sit at the edge of the bed, pull up your socks and just pick at your feet. And the guy's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It's a fucked up movie. I saw the movie a lot of times, like numerous times as a child. And I still don't understand why I watched the French. Who kept showing me the French connection? No memory of this. <laughs> William Friedkin, I have had a long and very difficult road. Have you ever been Poughkeepsie? Hey, man. Come on, give me a break. Hey, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been Poughkeepsie? You've been to Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it. Come on. Yes, yes, I've, I've been You've been there, right? Yeah. yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? 
You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it! Yes! All right. You put a shield on my partner. You know what that means? God damn it! All winter long, I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now, I'm gonna bust your ass for those three bags, and I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet in Poughkeepsie. Uh, Friedkin then traveled to Iraq, bringing with him only Von Sito, makeup artist Dick Smith, and his assistant Rick Baker, production designer Bill Malley, production coordinator Bill Kaplan. There are so many Bills in this movie. And first assistant director Terry Donnelly. The rest of the non-Iraqi crew came from England, which maintained diplomatic relations with Iraq. Production was based in Mosul, and they spent the first month scouting locations, a tea house, a forge, the museum curator's office, the winding city streets, and the archaeological dig site in Hatra, which was an hour southwest of the city. It dated back to the 3rd century BC and was currently under excavation by a team from Germany. It was here that they intended to set up the statue of Pazuzu, a 14-foot-high and 8-foot-wide fiberglass demon designed and constructed by Bill Malley back at Warner's. However, when they attempted to ship the statue, contained in a 15-by-10-foot crate clearly addressed to Baghdad, it was somehow lost and declared untraceable. They eventually tracked it down in Australia and brought it back to Iraq. I mean, I can see how you can make that mistake. There are parts of Australia that are quite like Baghdad. I've had packages where I look at the tracking website and I'm like, where do you think this is going? <laughs> you know, so it happens. So filming began a month after Friedkin arrived in Iraq. It reached 130 degrees Fahrenheit or 54 degrees Celsius by 11 a.m. So they could only shoot between 7 and 11 o'clock in the morning. Then they had to stop, wait all day, resume filming at 7 p.m. and work until sunset at 10. Because of this, Von Sito, whose makeup took four hours to apply, had to get up at 3 a.m., shoot through the morning, wear his several layers of latex through the entire eight-hour break, shoot through the evening, spend another hour having his makeup removed, sleep a few hours if he was lucky, and repeat the entire process the next day. And according to Friedkin, sweat would literally pour out from under the latex when it was taken off at the end of the night. Oh. Ew. Looks good, though. I mean, the makeup looks good. He looks old. But, he, I mean, how much of that is the makeup? We don't know. But <laughs> Shouldn't have given Dick Smith that honorary Oscar. You didn't deserve it. Um, that was just Max Lancito looking fucking old. They also struggled with sand blowing into the equipment and crew members developing dysentery and flu-like symptoms, in some cases necessitating their replacement. Uh, Friedkin also didn't have the equipment needed to project his dailies, so he essentially had no idea what any of his footage looked like until he got back to New York. The Friedkin Trail. You have died of dysentery. Imagine imagine you, you get dysentery and Friedkin's face is the last you see. I don't want to imagine that. Man, I'd fucking haunt him. <laughs> it's a sobering sobering thought still though he's very effusive about the time he spent filming in iraq the local color the people the mood blah 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 uh the extras of course were non-actors and the old woman in the coach who nearly runs down Marin in the street was 109 years old so naturally friedkin subjected her to six takes in the back of the carriage which was jolting all over the place she and max would see out look exactly the same age Really incredible when you think about it. After Iraq, Friedkin returned to New York to edit the film at the Warner's offices, which, of course, were located at 666 Fifth Avenue. I mean, really not doing much to, like, chill out on that curse, huh? Isn't that where Jared Kushner owns It now? is. Yep. Same building. Oh, that, like, shithole that, like, is not worth any fucking money. So shooting was completed in late summer of 1973, but Warner's was dead set on a December 26th release date. So that left him with, quote, less than six months to edit, build the sound effects, record the demon voice, mix the sound elements, 
color time the print, and approve release prints. He hired four editors with two assistants each and spent every day, 12 hours a day, six days a week, going back and forth between a pair of editing rooms, making changes and behaving in his own words, quote, like a dictator. Unshocking. In dubbing Reagan's voice, demon voice, Friedkin quickly realized that the voice of a grown man coming out of a little girl didn't work. Instead, he hired Mercedes McCambridge, an accomplished radio actress who'd also won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for All the King's Men in 1949 and received a second nomination for Giant in 1956. After viewing a rough cut of The Exorcist, the Catholic McCambridge told Friedkin that she'd take the role, but she'd need to drink bourbon and smoke cigarettes, both of which she'd quit years before, and requested the presence of priests for moral support. According to Friedkin, McCambridge performed the demon voice with her hands and feet tied to her chair and prepared her throat by drinking Jack Daniels, smoking cigarettes, and swallowing raw eggs. After an hour or two of recording, she would take a break to go sit with the priests. They would comfort her and read scripture until she was ready to return to work. A recording day usually stretched to 10 hours, stopping only when McCambridge said she was done. Friedkin claims that it was McCambridge herself who asked him not to credit her for her performance, saying, quote, If the film works, as I expect it will, I don't want people to think about who did the voice. This girl gives a marvelous performance. I don't want screen credit. I'm not asking for it contractually, and I won't accept it if it's offered. So put a pin in that one for later, because it's going to come back up. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan? You and us. Did you do that? Speak Latin. Ego te absolvo. Quad nomen mihi est. Bonjour. Quad nomen mihi est. La plume de ma tante. Ah! How long were you planning to stay in Reagan? Until she rots and lies stinking in the earth. For the music, Friedkin first approached Bernard Herrmann, legendary composer known for his work with Hitchcock. He met up with Herrmann in London and screened the rough cut, to which Herrmann responded, quote, I can probably help you with this dreck, but you gotta get rid of that first scene. He was referring to the Iraq prologue, which Friedkin and Blatty believed was absolutely necessary to set the mood for both novel and film. Herrmann was also only willing to work in London, and he planned to incorporate an organ, which Friedkin thought was a cliché. As Friedkin recalls, Herrmann said, quote, Kid, I've done hundreds of scores. How many films have you made? I stood up and shook his hand. Thank you for letting me meet an interesting person, I said, and left. On the plane ride home, I played our conversation back in my memory. Second thought set in. What could I possibly tell him about music for film? But this was my film, and I wanted to first please myself. Next, he turned to the Argentine-American composer Lalo Schifrin, an old friend who'd written the Mission Impossible theme and the score to the Steve McQueen thriller Bullet. However, while Friedkin wanted a sparse, abstract score, Schifrin assembled an 80-piece orchestra. Friedkin was horrified, and the difference in their visions served to end a decade-long friendship, and according to Friedkin, they still avoid eye contact when they see each other in person. Wow. (laughs) Man, I don't know. I feel like if your friendship can't survive professional disagreement, it's not a very good friendship. I I feel like, though, not being Friedkin's friend is a blessing. (laughs) 
true. Uh, at this point, Friedkin was running dangerously low on time and decided to just build a score using existing music. He chose a number of contemporary classical pieces and had them cleared for use and re-recorded. While he was digging through records, he stumbled upon Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. use of tubular bells is the exorcist's main theme made it virgin records first recording to sell over a million copies so technically if you think about it it's friedkin's fault we have to deal with richard branson today oh, fuck. another strike against him for the sound mix friedkin hired mexican sound technician gonzalo gavira who spoke no english according to friedkin one day senor gavira a short middle-aged man in an old white cotton shirt and shiny dark pants wearing no shoes came to the mixing studio with his cousin we ran the film for him while his cousin whispered a running translation of the dialogue. When the lights came up, he said in Spanish, I'm ready. Gavira then spent four hours recording a series of sound effects using mainly his own body and a leather wallet full of credit cards, which he bent back and forth to create the sound of Reagan's bones cracking as her head spins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, by this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. David! Amen. Then, apparently content with his work, Gavira left. The mix also incorporated animal sounds like dog growls and recordings of pigs going to slaughter, as well as audio of a trapped bee, a woman convulsing, and tape of an actual exorcism from the Vatican. Uh, Gavira is, like, the best character in this whole story, in my opinion. He just shows up for four hours with no <laughs> shoes on cracks a wallet and bails he's the opposite of you know lalo schifrin he's the opposite of bernard herman they're like this is the way i want to do it you know i i have the vision and he just shows up and he's like i can make it happen and then he's just yeah again cracks and then he's just like <laughs> okay bye see you later <laughs> he's the Oscars, i mean some people some people who think they're professional and are like oh you know but i've got to do it my way you're not that professional professional gets there gets in there and just fucking does the job oh, you know exactly shoes optional shoes are optional i like the fact you showed up without shoes because you know that's that's when you know you're dealing with a man who's very serious but it's craft because he doesn't deal with the essential you know the i mean the non-essentials like wearing shoes you know he's the kind of person who wouldn't care if you put best at the end of an email <laughs> god damn it i can't stop thinking about that that is the dumbest <laughs> fucking twitter thread ever and i don't understand being the kind of person who cares about that kind of thing or gets upset about it or is like oh my god how are we gonna keep professional standards just fucking die already okay that's how i feel about that if you're the kind of person who cares about the tone of an email sign off it's time for the urn you know you've outlived <laughs> your 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 usefulness on this planet and that's how i feel about that and you know what our friend our shoeless pal would have agreed with me so finally the completed film was screened for bill blatty there would later be some contention and legal battles between blatty and warners that i don't really have time to get into here but friedkin says blatty genuinely enjoyed the first cut and honestly at least in this case i have no reason to doubt him um as he writes quote he gave me an enthusiastic thumbs up and a big smile then a hug it's wonderful he said i have no notes don't change a thing i was elated as he confirmed in many interviews since he quote sprinkled holy water on my first cut he called Leo Greenfield, head of distribution at Warner Brothers, and told him the film should play in as many theaters as possible. This will be bigger than The Godfather, Blatty assured him. So from what I gather, the first cut was very similar to the director's cut, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh, and the director's cut is pretty faithful to the novel. 
So for that reason, I believe this account from Friedkin. However, after Blatty viewed the film, it was screened for the Warner Brothers executives. Producer John Kelly's first response was, what the fuck did we just see? And unlike Blatty, he had notes. He said to take out the second doctor consultation scene, take out the scene between Karis and Marin where Marin explains the meaning of Reagan's possession, uh, reverse the order of the two scenes, or reverse the order of two scenes, and cut the final scene between Dyer and Kinderman that ends the film on a hopeful note. He's just like, okay, um, everyone can just fester in misery. Also, we're not going to give you any, like, exposition. Mm -hmm. I think that's prejudice against Kinderman. He doesn't understand that Kinderman has no friends, no family, nothing to live for. And he just really wants somebody to go to go the goddamn movies with him. And if Dyer doesn't go, he's he's going to snap. <laughs> and I think he should be given that chance. I, I completely reject that interpretation of the ending. And I am glad that Kinderman got his chance to make friends, even though it didn't work out for him. But you got to shoot your shot, you know? Friedkin was annoyed, but he eventually made the cuts against Blatty's wishes. He removed 12 minutes of footage. The resulting two-hour film was the version released to theaters in 1973, uh, where the scene between Father Dyer and Lieutenant Kinderman, which features in the novel, was meant to end the story on a hopeful note. The new ending with Father Dyer walking away was more pessimistic, though Friedkin had hoped the preceding exchange between Dyer and a cured Reagan would offset that. Blatty later commented, quote, The film that Billy delivered in 1973 was highly effective, but it lacked a spiritual center. You proceeded from shock to shock without a clear purpose. It was a roller coaster ride whose success made me comfortably well off, but also troubled me. And ironically, I always believed that removing the moral center of the film actually limited its audience appeal. With these scenes, you understood why you were being subjected to all this horror, why this girl was suffering so. From Friedkin's perspective, quote, In hindsight, I think that if the film has relevance, it's due to the tension between Blatty's tightly structured script and absolute faith and my, imp my improvisational, agnostic approach to it. I simply wanted to tell a good story. Its conclusion to me was inherent. The girl was possessed, and the exorcism was successful. Blatty wanted that underscored. I did my best to eliminate the underscoring. In any case, they managed against all odds to secure an R rating rather than the dreaded X, which would have crippled the movie at the box office. The film was initially scheduled for release in just 26 theaters across the country, so they needed only 26 prints. This allowed Friedkin an absolutely insane amount of control over each individual copy of the film. Unhappy with the work coming out of the Technicolor lab at Warner's, he took the unlikely step of moving to the lab at MGM, which was very much past its glory days, and was able to dedicate its full attention to The Exorcist. So MGM color timer Bob McMillan managed to produce all 26 prints in under a month, and Friedkin was delighted with the results. Then Friedkin himself, along with two technicians, traveled to every single one of the 26 theaters around the country where the movie was booked, and manually set the sound levels and screen brightness at each one. God, what a nightmare. Imagine this being like, you know, you're the theater operator, and this, you know, Friedkin comes and tells you how to basically run your business. Man, I don't know how he didn't get punched real hard. All the time. I was just say that the color, the like, the color fidelity in this movie is so good and i didn't know that that was the the way they pursued it with the um using the the different lab but mm -hmm. it really is it's a, the colors are remarkably true in this movie at a time when oftentimes there's this there are various odd kind of like tonal casts to to color in this era you know you have kind of that gordon willis thing where everything's a little yellow and a little you know his whole rembrandt lighting or you go to the other end of the spectrum and then you have things that are very olive-looking, very green-gray and very cold. And I always appreciated about this movie is um, how well the colors are integrated into it. And it really what 
kind of I always just attribute to just maybe just a really good DP, a really good print, but I appreciate that Freddie went to that extra um length because I think it really works with the film's effectiveness. I don't know. I, I think that because it looks so real, because it is true to the eye, as opposed to um, being a more stylistic approach, it makes it scarier, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to like yeah. nowadays when you want to make something scary, it's like everything's dim and there's like a blue filter over it. But Oh my God, it's so annoying. It's always the realism in horror that is most terrifying to me. Exactly. Um, because it's just like, this is your experience. This is how you would experience this if it was happening to you. You wouldn't be fucking under a blue filter or like with James Wan's sense of not being accurate to a time period, um, but still insisting to do period pieces, you know? like His movies always have this like weird like cream-colored pall over them that's like really weird. And I don't get it. And I understand that. I guess that's kind of like the whole like, oh, it's like almost like sepia toned. It's it doesn't work at all. And so everything just kind of looks like kind of doughy. And I think it's really cheap. Uh, I think it's trying to like recreate that sort of, you know, 70s. Yeah, it just doesn't cast. It doesn't. No, it doesn't work because he's not a good director. (laughs) That's true. It's not like, again, my one of my favorites when Roger Corman in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre tries to evoke uh, two strip Technicolor in that one scene by using pinks, reds and greens. With the very limited... When the rest of the movie palette. looks like ass. Well, you know, sometimes you can only really dedicate your budget to <laughs> specific things, you know. Uh, no, I it never... Usually trying to recreate kind of a, a bygone processing method doesn't really work well. But it, anyway, The Exorcist looks beautiful. And again, because it looks so, so true to the eye. And it's really interesting. Freakin's good at some things, and he's really bad at other things. So the film premiered nationwide on December 26th, but it had its Los Angeles preview on December 23rd. Lines wrapped around the block, which would become routine for showings of The Exorcist. The audience sat in total silence through the movie, then slowly filed out when it ended. Uh, in the parking lot following the preview, Friedkin was confronted by Mercedes McCambridge, who was outraged by her lack of credit. He insisted that she had in fact asked not to be credited, but she denied this and went to Variety in the Hollywood Reporter, and her lawyer threatened to sue. So Warner's then just added the credit to all 26 prints. Uh, this is a weird one. I, I'm not clear on what really happened there. Friedkin insists she was, you know, asked for the credit to not be made. I can't come up with... But, I mean, as we've established, Friedkin lies a lot. Yeah, but I can't come up with a reason why Friedkin wouldn't have wanted to credit her. And I also think that by this point in time, wouldn't they be risking a lawsuit from the Screen Actors Guild if they intentionally... Yeah. Did? You know what I mean? Like, that, I would think, would be yeah bad business decision. So I, I think maybe she made that... Stacey Cambridge was a weird person. She, she was, was, yes. So... I, you Mm, know, she strikes me as the kind of person who would do something like that and then be like, I never said that. Like all crazy people. So either way, McCambridge got her rightful credit. The movie opened in 26 theaters nationwide and demand was enormous. Scalpers were selling tickets on the street for $50 each. One man waiting in line in Manhattan told the New York Times, quote, we're here because we're nuts and we want to be part of the madness. I mean, that's how much movie tickets cost now. I mean... (laughs) I mean, before this happened and we could go to the movies, that's how much they cost. As Warner scrambled to prepare more prints and open in more theaters, Friedkin heard that a porno theater in Long Beach had gotten their hands on a 16mm bootleg print with out-of-sync audio. Uh, this, more than the loss of ticket sales, was horrifying to Friedkin. He couldn't stand knowing that the film wasn't being seen exactly as he'd intended. So Friedkin being Friedkin had a buddy who was, quote, on the wrong side of the law and offered to, quote, handle the situation. (gasps) With... (laughs) What does that mean? 
mean? <laughs> so with Friedkin and David Salvin waiting in the idling car, the friend went into the porno theater projection booth, demanded the projectionist hand over the film, and opened his jacket to reveal a gun. The frightened projectionist <gasps> pulled the film mid-screening and handed it over. Uh, a few days later, Friedkin got a call from Warner's president, Frank Wells, who said the LAPD was in his office because someone had stolen a bootleg copy of The Exorcist at gunpoint. The officers, <laughs> along with the projectionist, then came into Friedkin's office where the bootleg was hidden in the couch cushions. Uh, Friedkin played innocent, and the projectionist was obviously unable to ID him because he'd been waiting in the car the whole time, so the incident was basically forgotten. But yeah, they like they stuck up a guy for a bootleg print of The Exorcist. I mean, he continues to be the most insane person. So even though the movie was written by a devout Catholic with actual priests acting both as advisors and in the cast, it still spawned denouncements. Uh, Jack Valenti had to write a letter defending the MPAA decision to give it an R rating, which was published in the New York Times. And Billy Graham is said to have suggested that the devil possessed the film itself. That is, the physical prints of the movie were literally possessed by Satan. People in the audience did have strong reactions. There was vomiting, fainting, people wound up in the emergency room. David Sheehan is with us tonight to talk about a movie that has people passing out. The manager of the National Theatre in Westwood says that there indeed are at least a dozen people who faint or become ill during every showing. I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie. I passed out in, in about the first half hour, yeah. The Exorcist was no longer just the most successful motion picture in film history, but had become an unquestioned sociological phenomenon. Uh, of course, a number of rumored incidents were attributed to the film, like a teenager's death from a seizure a day after seeing it, as well as some suicides, some murders, some alleged possessions. Uh, psychiatrists reported an uptick in patients claiming to be possessed, and one pastor held a public burning of Blatty's novel. Uh, some towns in the UK banned the movie outright, and people began taking exorcist bus trips to see it in towns where it was allowed to play. And this was not limited to the early 70s. The film was actually unavailable for purchase on video in the UK between 1988 and 1999. Yeah, it took a really long time before they were allowed to get the print, which is it's crazy, considering some of the fucked up shit that happens in England. I was going to say like the dentistry. The exorcist fad also brought exorcism to the forefront and quite literally changed the face of Christianity. Uh, you might remember that exorcism had been so rare in the first half of the century that the Roland Doe case was only the third reported by the Catholic Church in America, and Blatty had struggled to find research materials on the subject. By the 1980s, even Protestants were performing exorcisms, and the tropes popularized by the exorcists are, you know, like pop culture mainstays today. Obviously, I'm not, like, saying that The Exorcist created the satanic panic, but it was certainly instrumental. Sure didn't help. Didn't help quell it, did it? The satanic panic is, like, the most insane thing to think about, especially for people like us who have grown up, obviously, post all of that happening, where, like, thinking about there was a time in world history where... Like the concept of Satan wasn't what it is today. Mm -hmm. Like, and it only is quite recent that that concept of like a single being of Satan um, exists. And it's just like, man, people just wanted to watch a cool movie and you guys ruined it for everyone, <laughs> yeah. huh? And you know, and now we've got shit like QAnon, you know, going back to the idea that people are gullible as, as anything. And as long as you attach, you know, some sort of vague concern for the children not about the children like dying of coronavirus for example you know or anything no. like that but just you know but their freedom yeah you know and 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 uh tom cruise is going to drink their blood to stay young and beautiful or whatever the fuck these people believe there's no hope at least the 80s gave us new coke what have we got now we don't have new coke 
We don't even have Crystal Pepsi. We don't even have Jolt Cola. We don't yeah. We don't have Jolt Cola, Amelia. You're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Well, the movie even inspired some people to join the priesthood. Uh, at a taping of the Merv Griffin show, none other than Jimmy Cagney took Friedkin aside and told him, quote, I've got a bone to pick with you, son. I had the greatest barber in the world for more than 30 years. He saw your movie and he left the profession to become a priest. I'll never find a barber that good again. <laughs> that is very cag. <laughs> but also, what was so difficult about Cagney's haircut? <laughs> well, that another barber couldn't, like, learn. One thing about old people is that, as they get older, their hair starts to take on the texture of, like, a soft, like a, like a, a the down inside of a pillow. You know, like a like a bird's. Feather. I wish mine was doing that. Mine's just becoming like fucking steel. It's like a steel brush. My grandma's hair literally is like it's like something that you would find like attached to like a doll's wig from like the nineteenth century. <laughs> it's just one of those things that happens to old people. And I, I'm, so, I'm sure Cag had these soft little you know baby pigeon feather hairs, and you know you hold them up to cut them, and they go like <laughs> and they like jump out of the way. You know, like they're alive, <laughs> and that's. Why Cag needed this barber who left one calling for another. But, you know, the Catholic Church always calls back. Surely priests can still cut hair, though. I mean, they, in this movie, they show priests doing all kinds of things. Maybe it was just an excuse because you didn't want to hang out with Cag anymore. Fair enough. Uh, the movie also made a fuckload of money. In its initial run, it earned $100 million against a $12 million budget and would go on to make well over $400 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing movie of all time until Jaws two years later. Some good movies. It's a good list. It's just a great time for movies, huh? Yeah, not like now. I mean, now there are no movies. So. <laughs> There's Christopher Nolan's Tenet, now available in a theater near you that isn't open. A uh, critical response was split. A lot of so-called prestigious critics hated it. Vincent Canby called it pornography, and Pauline Kael said it was an utterly unfeeling movie about miracles with no feeling for God or terror of Satan. Honestly, Vincent Canby's never had a, an opinion that I've agreed with, so... And Pauline Kael, I, I never got, I never got, never really understood it. Never really understood the cult of personality around Polly Kale. Does Raj have an opinion? I didn't write down Raj's opinion, but I believe he liked it. Raj can't possibly say anything mean about The Exorcist when he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Doll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nevertheless, it did receive 10 Academy Award nominations. Best Picture, Best Actress for Burston, Best Supporting Actor for Miller, Best Supporting Actress for Blair... Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Production Design, and Best Sound Mixing. Uh, it won for Screenplay and Sound. Jack Haley Jr., who produced the show that year, allegedly told Friedkin that there was something of a conspiracy against the film among the old guard in the Academy, who believed that an Exorcist Best Picture win would change the industry beyond repair and for the worse. Uh, supposedly, it was George Cukor who led the crusade. According to Friedkin, he attended a Best Director luncheon hosted by a Cukor who, quote, took me aside. You know, he whispered, these rumors about me knocking your film are bullshit. I think it's a great picture. I thanked him and told him I hadn't heard the rumors. It was curious that he denied it so vehemently without my having mentioned it. Yeah, that is a bit weird. <laughs> That's totally Cukor playing mind games. Just like allegedly when he sent Clark Gable the bottle of mouthwash. You know, that's... I don't know if that's so much a mind game and just, like, a really unsubtle hint. Well, either way, I, I think Cukor absolutely was behind the scenes. And then, you know, 
telling one thing to Freakin's face, saying another thing to Freakin's behind, because he was a bitch, and that's what you love about him. I mean, it goes part and parcel with the Academy's reluctance to acknowledge horror as a, I guess, meritable genre. They don't often acknowledge it. The Academy's in a really weird place in the early 70s, because there is definitely um, a pressure to kind of heap accolades upon these films that are making real waves of the industry, you know, that are that are bringing in fresh blood. But also, you know, if you start lauding the fresh blood, you make yourself redundant. And so I can understand why a lot of the old guard would be like, oh, we can't, you know, if, if your whole thing is decency and taste and restraint, you know, you don't want to see The Exorcist win Best Picture because then all of a sudden what you have to offer no longer has as much of an appeal. Mm-hmm. And... I think The Exorcist isn't responsible for this. No no one movie is truly responsible for this. But as the 70s uh, marches on, that constant loosening of restraint, that constant kind of setting back of, of moral boundaries, definitely gets to the point where the uh, industry really is on the precipice of something very bad happening. And obviously a lot of actors have talked about that, about how difficult it was to get scripts that were totally degrading. Shirley MacLaine famously said that the 70s, you know, all you, you never played a scene that was outside of a bedroom. You know, women were constantly raped in movies in the 70s. It definitely is part of a, a greater societal breakdown. But also I can see why if you're somebody like George Cukor, you're like, this might not be very good. This might be a bad sign. Um, so either way, if he was fucking with Friedkin, if he wasn't fucking with Friedkin, fine either way. In 2000, the ever-magnanimous Friedkin decided, certainly with no financial motivation whatsoever, that it was time to throw Blatty a bone. As he explained, quote, I felt that Bill created this, and the film had played by that time for about 27 years with those cuts that worked marvelously well, Friedkin says. I thought, why shouldn't Bill have the version he wants at that point? So the result was an extended director's cut re-released into theaters as the version you've never seen, with the 12 minutes of footage that had been removed from the initial cut in 1973. Uh, This included two new opening shots of the McNeil House and the Virgin Mary statue that's later desecrated, the consultation between Chris and Dr. Klein, which was intended to show the small changes in Reagan's demeanor. Have you ever known your daughter to swear? To use obscenities? No, never. Hmm. Interesting. Similar. Similar to things like her line. It's uncharacteristic for her. I don't understand. She doesn't swear. She let loose quite a string while I was examining her, Mrs. What'd she say? Her vocabulary is rather extensive. Well, give me an example. What did, like, like what? Specifically, what did she say? Well, specifically, Mrs. McNeil, she advised me to keep my fingers away from her. Goddamn cunt. Uh, Reagan undergoing further tests, more quote-unquote subliminal shots of actress Eileen Dietz in makeup as the demon Pazuzu, the now infamous spider walk down the stairs, an additional scene of Karis in the la- in the language lab, a scene in which Chris brings Father Marion a cup of coffee. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Would you like some brandy in that, Father? Well, the doctors say I shouldn't, but thank God. My will is weak. Uh, a scene in which Marin and Karis take a break from the exorcism and discuss the nature of Reagan's possession. Why this girl doesn't make sense. 
I think the point is to make us despair. To see ourselves as animal and ugly. To reject the possibility that God could love us. And some additions to the ending, in which Father Dyer returns the medal to Chris and Reagan rather than keeping it himself, then has a lighthearted conversation with Lieutenant Kinderman. Father Dyer, you go to films? Sure. Well, I got passes, you know. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason. And in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Another one. Had your lunch? No. Uh, a lot of people hate the director's cut. I tend to be more generous towards it. Some of the Pazuzu faces are a bit much. There's one in the kitchen that I think is ridiculous. Um, oh, I but, like that one. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it's so stupid. Yeah, he pops up over, like, the hood, right? Yeah. The stove, the stove hood. It's just like, boop! Boop! Uh, but I do... I think the major thing is that I prefer the extended ending, like, 100%. And I also prefer, like, the prologue. I like having more context for what the fuck is happening, whereas a lot of it in the original cut is, like, you're left to just sort of fill in the gaps yourself, which, I mean, I guess is part of the charm of some things, but I'm an idiot and I would like things spelled out to me, please. It's a lot more cohesive now, yeah. Absolutely. And also, this, the, the stair crawl, like, alone is worth the price of admission. <laughs> so, yeah. Were it just for that, I would see the director's cut as being a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, it's freaky as hell. It's good shit. Uh, Friedkin has commented often that he believes audiences, quote, take from the film what they bring to it. If you think the world is a dark and evil place where Satan rules, you can get that from The Exorcist. If, on the other hand, you believe, as I do, that a constant struggle takes place within all of us and that sometimes goodness wins out, that's there as well. And I do think that's better represented by the director's cut version with the extended ending than by the original. So I'm team director's cut. Yeah, I think I'd be on team director's cut purely for Kinderman sort of getting a an ending where he gets a Yeah, friend. I like the director's cut just because I love the movie and I don't want it to end. And, you know, I also don't give a shit about, like, what purists of any kind of film think because... It's boring. We're all just here for a good fucking time. Can you just shut up? Well, like... Also, I mean, from Friedkin's own recollection, the director's cut is far closer to what he originally had before the Warner execs started, you know, butting in. So Yeah, and what do executives know? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck suits. Fuck Vatican II taking the Latin out of the Catholic Church, which is one of the coolest aspects of the movie, all the weird Latin shit. Bring that back. Fuck Warner Brothers. Fuck William Friedkin. I do like DB Why You Do This To Me. <laughs> one of my favorite lines of dialogue in any Demi, why you do this to me? Demi, Demi, please, I'm so scared. Demi, why you do this to me? Classic. Demi, why you do this to me? Please, Demi, I'm afraid. You're not my mother. Demi, please. What is it? Her heart. Can you give her something? 
Ponce Coma. I se poljiku razmenos. Na pasto kravati su... You're not my mother! Don't listen. Why, Dimi? Dimi! Dimi, please! Amelia said she uh, asked her cat earlier. Amelia, if you could. Yeah. Oh, I was like, I get, I, because he's asleep currently on my bed, and I went over and like patted him on the head, and he lifted his paw and batted my hand away. And I was like, why you do this to me, Gully? Why you do this? Because he's just a little bastard. Um, also, whenever she says Dimmy, I think immediately of Dim Sim, so it made me very hungry. And that's such a feat for a movie where one of the central scenes involves a child vomiting all over the place. I think it's a really excellent movie. I'm sure no one's ever had that hot take before. <laughs> you should see it. If you haven't seen it, I, I feel like everyone who listens to this podcast has seen it. Watch it again, though. It's good. Um, watch it again. Yeah, bring it out for spooky seasons. Perfect time to be watching it. And yeah, just like, don't fuck with demons, I guess, is the central message. That is the central message. I think the central message of this episode is that go rewatch the movie, but every time you see Father Dyer, specifically in the scene where Reagan pisses on the rug, imagine him wearing a Snoopy sweatshirt. Hell yeah. Yes. That was my favorite part of the book. I was so happy. I can't, that, that, if I had, if there's one thing, if there's honestly one thing I would change about this movie, it would be the Snoopy sweatshirt. (laughs) I have a Snoopy sweatshirt. Well, look, it's time for us to do some some deep fakes. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, I hope you're staying spooky and safe in this Halloween season. Uh, please look forward to the rest of the slate for this month. And you can get in touch with us. Tell us what you thought on our socials, at BasketPod um, on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast too. That would be extremely helpful. And tell your normie friends if they want to hear about a movie that, that perhaps they have actually seen, <laughs> um, that they can listen to this episode and enjoy it. Anyway, wear a mask. I think that's it. That's it. Bye. 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 remember the being in the Boise airport because it was the first time I ever had a 10-piece chicken McNugget meal. And I don't really <laughs> remember much else about Idaho for the fact it was fucking freezing. Oh, holy shit. There is the biggest spider on this desk right now. Hold on. Give me, oh my god. What the fuck? <laughs> He's back. He's back from the first episode we ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> that was huge. I don't know where he went. He just like yeeted across my desk. Oh my god, he has his nasty little spider tentacles all over my phone. <laughs> Fuck off and don't come back. Where's that fucking spider? I'm living in fear. I don't even know what kind of spider that was. It had pretty distinctive markings. Well, we'll find out if you're dead by the end of this recording. Oh god, okay. That's a lot of dead grandpas. <laughs> fucking, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a lot of dead grandpas. <laughs> like, like, hey everyone, we're the Smashing Pumpkins. Hey, the dead grandpas. <laughs> And there's a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> we have a horn section. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, we're a ska band. <laughs> That's cool. We should start a ska band. Probably be more lucrative than podcasting. You know who was also a ska band originally? Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth was a ska band. <laughs> that doesn't shock me at all. Before they became a beloved fixture 
of the um, children's theme track, uh, theme sound, soundtrack, theme track. soundtrack scene, the soundtrack scene. They, uh, this is my, my Tyson impression. They were a ska band and it was not good. Anyway, 